Welcome in, everyone. Hello. This is Everything Sucks, Let's Fix It, Episode 8. So we're back in person, people. We're, we're back. Thank goodness. Thank My God. name is Ben Mayer. My name is Anthony Buono. Um, today is July 8th, 2023. We've been, we've been a little more spaced out with these few episodes because I've been on vacation. We're I've been on, on a little bit of vacation. Yeah. Um, we wanted to get it back in person. Yeah. The flow is much better. Way, way better. Yeah. Um, so it's exciting. We want to promote our socials. We are on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Uh, the handle should be es.lfi on TikTok, and it's everything sucks. Let's fix it on Instagram and YouTube. If you just search everything sucks, let's fix it, we should also pop up. And we just hit 100 subscribers on YouTube, which is pretty dope. So yeah. <laughs> thanks for caring what we have to say, guys. That's really awesome. Totally. I super appreciate that. It's amazing. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, and we are super excited to talk about all the things that happened, all the book, all the things we read in our book, yes. our deep dive analysis. Yes. Uh, but as always, we'll start with our current events. Definitely. So what's the first thing on your radar, Ben? What did so you pick up? I want to start in the world of semiconductors. Uh, naturally. Yes. Two episodes ago, we did a deep dive on the, the chip war between China and the U.S. that's currently happening. Brief context here. Basically, the U.S. and China both see chips as really the crucial technology of the future in terms of military and even more importantly, probably in terms of AI mm -hmm. um, as maybe an economic juggernaut. Uh, so all eyes are on chips. The U.S. has implemented a lot of export restrictions on its essential chip making technology so that China can't access it. And just recently, there was another Western country that implemented export controls. And that country was the Netherlands. Which, if you've watched that deep dive, you know exactly where this is going. Yes. So the Netherlands has one company called ASML that makes the electron or the, the ultraviolet lithography machines yes. that are needed to make these microscopic semiconductors. So the the order of magnitude and how you measure how good a chip is is how many nanometers of space is in between each transistor. And it, you are unable to get the two nanometers in between each transistor if you are unable to get it if you don't have this type of machine. So this machine is, you know, highly sought after in China. They want this machine in their country. But right now, Netherlands is fighting to keep it out. Exactly. Netherlands just implemented these, these export controls. Um, and this is... This is so huge because asml is a complete monopoly mm -hmm. you t we talked about this in the deep dive um they can't get these anywhere else um so this is just another massive blow after the massive blow that china took from u.s export controls that happened in october of last year exactly and china recently submitted a patent for an ultraviolet lithography machine that was going to be capable of creating microchips on the seven nanometer level in between spaces. That doesn't mean they can build it yet. It doesn't, it doesn't even know if they can work, but they've submitted a patent with at least the blueprint design to get the seven nanometer level. Mm. But the difference between seven nanometers and two nanometers is immense. And that is making the difference. That's how far behind China is currently. They're worried about seven nanometers and the West is already has two figured out, planning on trying to break it down to one. Yeah. Yeah. So China's behind here 
But the thing is, they, they've retaliated. Mm-hmm. So the news after this is a few days later. And I think this was a response not just to the Netherlands controls, but the U.S. controls from before. Yeah. Um, China has restricted its own exports of germanium and gallium. So these are two minerals that are also essential in ships. And as of now, China produces about 60% of the world's germanium and 80% of its gallium. So this is another thing we talked about in the deep dive, where China really does have a stranglehold in the supply chain is with the critical minerals. It mines and refines the vast majority of them in the world. So they're deciding to put a little bit of the pressure on here. Which is the right move. I mean, this is obviously every country is playing to their strengths now. The West has the high value added aspects of the supply chain. And they're going to keep those high value added parts away from China. Now, China has the low value added parts, the resources needed. um, And they're going to keep them out of the West's hands as best as they can. I don't know ways to get out of this. We've talked recently about lithium. Yeah. And how America is now making closer ties with Australia to make sure that Australian lithium reserves are going to the United States, um, kind of blocking China out from that um, possibility. But I don't know other ways to get germanium and gallium other outside of China. I right? think well, so. There are countries that are our allies mm-hmm. that do produce these, obviously at a much smaller scale right. than China. It's not eighty percent of the world supply. Exactly. But I think the UK is an example of one of them. We also, I, I think I read something about this. I think the US has the largest natural supply of germanium in the world. Okay. But we haven't been tapping it. And so this is another part of China's strategy that we talked about in the deep dive, right? Is that because of their communist structure, they can pour money into their industry and make right. it so much cheaper than any other country to produce these materials that it's not worth it for any country to even build up the supply chain. Right. China has already uh, mobilized an industrial policy around capturing the germanium Mm -hmm. and making an industrial policy around that and investing so much money in that. And America is lagging behind on that because there was no profit incentive to go after it. There's a national interest perspective. There's natural interest to go after that germanium, but there isn't a profit incentive. And that's one of the massive flaws of the market capitalist economy yes. and something that we need to tackle and deal with. Otherwise, the Chinese model gets these advantages. Exactly. So I think what happens now is like we haven't had a reason to before. Now we do. So I think money will start being poured into the raw material level of the supply chain. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of how long it's going to take. Right. And one thing I did read is that the the Pentagon reported that it has its own stockpiles of germanium and gallium, and I assume every other critical mineral in thinking about these kinds of controls, who knows how long it's going to last and who knows how long it's going to take to ramp up supply chains mm-hmm. on allied shores. Right. Right, because this decoupling of China is going to be, you know, on every level. Exactly. And it's so funny because they keep keep emphasizing that it's not going to be a decoupling. Like Biden says this, Janet Yellen is Janet Yellen just went there saying we're partners. Yeah. They're just just trying to put ice on the open wound. That's how I feel. Like they're just trying to do everything they can to not, you know, push them over the edge and freak them out. Yeah. But the cards are on the table. Right. 
everyone can see them. The cards are flipped up. Everyone's all in. Yeah. We're just waiting for the river card. Exactly. What What else are you going to do? Right. Yeah. But I, I thought it was funny because when, when the Dutch put these export controls on, um, the Chinese... Uh, the Chinese embassy in the Netherlands responded and they were saying that they were upset that the Dutch were going against the international trade order and that, you know, these, these are wrong. This is causing inefficiencies in the global economy and they should be upset about this and reverse it. But then China goes and does their germanium gallon and it just shows that's all vacuous. It's all nonsense. Yeah. No one actually believes that. That's just a whole... And no one cares. No one cares. No. No one cares. Yeah. You just have to keep making your political posture. Exactly. All right. Let's stay on chips and let's move on to what's going on with some of the TSMC stuff. Yes. Yeah. So TSMC is the largest chip producer in the world. They're based in Taiwan. But with the Chips Act, um, we're encouraging some onshoring of their production into the United States. They're in the middle, in the process of building a fab. Um, it's a, a facility where you produce semiconductors. They're producing one in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, but there's some labor troubles going on over there that's kind of going against Biden's message. Biden is supposed to be the union president. He's supposed to be the union guy. He's supposed yep. to be the made in America guy. Um, well, what does made in America mean if the workers aren't from America? Because right now, TSMC is sending 500 Taiwanese workers from Taiwan into Phoenix, Arizona to try to get this fab up and operational, or at least one of the first two. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you feel about this? We have 500 Taiwanese workers coming into the United States. Obviously, there are some justifications, but how do you feel about it at the front? I'm certainly not a fan. Mm -hmm. I want. I agree with the idea of making these American jobs. Like a huge part of the CHIPS Act is supposed to be to bring the the jobs that were lost with globalization, kind of the more manufacturing, maybe lower skilled type jobs yep. back to Americans. That's exactly what's not happening. But what I'm trying to think is like, what was the alternative? Was the alternative, I mean, what you were talking about is the, um, the certain rule for unions to not be necessary. What's it called? So Arizona is a right to work state, yeah. which means unions are very weak in Arizona. Um, non-union workers don't have to pay union dues, even though they get union representation at the facility. So with that, it's unions are super weak in Arizona. So Arizona isn't a fair test case to talk about union labor. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if this was going on in Michigan and union labor wasn't getting used, Michigan just repealed right to work. There'd be a little bit of a difference. But there are still things that the government should be doing to pushing for this union stuff. But TSMC has already come out and they've said, look, you want to use union labor? It's just too expensive. Flat out. That's that's my problem. Like I would I would think that the fix for this was for Biden to have actually written, wrote right into the CHIPS Act. That it has to be union labor. It has labor. to be union labor. But I also think that would scare these companies away. Right. And when it comes down to it, like we've already talked about that the CHIPS Act does include provisions that the, the U.S. can claw back the money that they give companies if it's not used for the projects that were initially listed. Right. So, Which is an awesome thing that we're glad is included. Yes. In that way, like I, I think he probably pushed as far as he could in terms of ensuring that these fabs were actually made. And while I do want them to be American workers, right, if forcing them to be American workers would have prevented the fabs from being built at all, mm -hmm. 
that's probably not worth it. Right. That's probably not the, that's probably not the good trade off. Yeah. And also I was reading that these 500 Taiwanese workers had to come in because the truth is these Taiwanese workers have been working on these fabs for decades. These American workers have been working on these fabs for six months. Mm -hmm. There's a difference in experience level. And that's, that's not, that's not spin. That's not propaganda from TSMC. The truth is these guys have been working on these machines for however long, and they have more experience building them and building the facilities. And I imagine that they are going to be able to get it done faster. Now, hopefully once we, as we talked about with the CHIPS Act, there was so much good investment into education that these can eventually become American jobs. Right now, it looks like with this first fab facility, TSMC needs outside non-American labor to get yeah. it done. Which which we expected. And we've also talked about the expected labor shortage yeah. that the chips industry faces. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't surprise me at all that some of it is going to be Taiwanese work. What I'm... We even talked about that on the pod, on the deep dive specifically that we expected Taiwanese workers to come and do it. Exactly. Yeah, we even said that they were we, we were worried about the invasion of Taiwan mm-hmm. because of of semiconductor workers who might be killed because that they're the only people who have this information yeah. and you can't read it and learn it from a manual or a blueprint. You needed to have someone who's done it before to teach you. So we've always expected Taiwanese workers to be a part of this equation. Definitely, definitely. The the one other thing that I wanted to mention on this is the there are reports of horrific conditions at the work site right they're still constructing the fab right now and um some of the workers on the site have testified that it's like the worst working conditions they've ever seen um that there are allegations that two people have died Mm -hmm. on site um that massive piping has like fallen from cranes and injured people uh that people i think that there were allegations that a person had like fallen through the stairs and i've heard that one that's um yeah i think that's probably the spot where i would criticize the american government the most Mm -hmm. is in like let's put a little bit more scrutiny on this project let's force them to adhere to um to our standards but then again i still wonder like is that going to scare tsmc away yeah right i don't think it's a weird balance union labor Union labor and demanding union labor may, and I can accept that. I don't think good working conditions or safer working conditions necessarily will. I think they're used to doing things a specific way mm-hmm. in a country that doesn't have as good labor protections. Yeah. And now that they're in a country that it has better labor protections, we should be bringing down the hammer on things that we should, mm. you know what I mean, that are easy to smack down. Sure. Um, and, you know, kind of get them acclimated to the American system and don't think that they get away with it. You know, yeah, um, that makes yeah. sense. But it, yeah, I, I've heard reports about it being pretty bad working conditions, and I hope more American workers will get rolled into the fab in the coming years, which I'm sure they will. Yeah, yeah. But the first wave, you just need the experience. Yeah, I think it does. It does make sense. I mean, that's kind of how knowledge transfer works, right? right? You can't expect it all to come in one fell swoop. No, of course not. Um, but we're going to stay on at least the resources of supply chips, chain of supply chains and all this stuff because yeah. we got we got another story yeah. um, related to lithium. Um, yeah, I was super interested to see this in the New York Times. Um, basically, the lithium demand over the next several years and even decades is going to go through the roof because it is an essential material needed not only it's needed for semiconductors but crucially is needed for electric vehicles in the batteries yeah um and right now the global supply chain doesn't 
produce nearly enough lithium. We're not at all prepared to scare up electric vehicle production. No, not even close. And so because of that, car companies are getting into the business of lithium mining, which is super interesting. And um, this has actually happened before, what I learned. At the very beginning of the auto industry, Ford Motor, I think, partnered with mining companies in South America who produced rubber no way there wasn't enough rubber for tires and so now the same thing is happening where these mining companies they don't have the capital to scale up their operations Mm -hmm. to fulfill the demand of these car companies um and so instead car companies are putting in all this investment on the front end so they can beef up the supply chains for themselves and supply their cars that are going to need all of these lithium batteries moving That's forward. That's crazy. It's crazy that it's already happened. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's so crazy. And, the, well, the interesting thing is going to be to see whether, are these companies going to be left holding the bag? Mm-hmm. Because there's a worry that, like, you beef up the supply chain so much, and then they're overproducing, c- prices go way down, and you end up having paid way more than it was worth to actually beef up that supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if they're not, if they're in the business of car making, mm-hmm. not of lithium production, yeah. them overproducing lithium isn't really a danger on the car manufacturer side, right? They can take the hit. They can take the, well, because they're not ma- they're not taking the hit if they're not the ones selling the lithium. If they're only putting up the capital for the businesses to produce the lithium, mm-hmm. and then they're buying it off those companies anyway, yeah, right, then they don't get they don't get negatively affected by plummeting lithium prices. They only get negative effect, negatively affected if electric vehicles don't stick. That's fair. Right. That's a good point. But then then there's also there's an issue with the lithium mining companies if prices fall too low. Yeah. And the buyers aren't there at the scale that Ford thought. Mm-hmm. Ford gets a bunch of lithium for free, but then the spigot that's producing the lithium gets cut off. Yeah. So that's, that's when it gets hard. So, but... Uh, I mean, I think it's great to see more lithium production in the story. I think it's awesome. Yeah. You know, because I, I, I would love to see lithium prices start plummeting. We've talked about how lithium prices have been on the downtrend mm-hmm. for the first time ever in the last few months. And we and this is a part of see, we're seeing the future graph get made right now. You yeah. know what I mean? We are seeing the trend line go down in real time. That's so exciting. I, I know. Yeah. It's cool. It's crazy when you pay attention to things, how everything just makes sense. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. I know. Wild. And that's and again, this is great because now this is America beefing up lithium. We have this thing with Australia. We have lithium coming out of these car companies' investments. Um, do you know where these lithium mines are right now? Are they in Central America? Are they in Australia? Do I you know? have no clue. No? No. Okay. I'm going to try to do a quick search for it. If not, then we'll move on. But I just think it's really good that America is working on building that back up, hmm. becoming more self-sufficient like that. Yeah, I don't see it. Okay. Hmm. So, bad. too bad. All right, let's move on to the big beef. Yeah, so this this happened a little while ago now because we haven't recorded in a bit. Mm-hmm. But there were three recent major Supreme Court decisions that came out, and we need to talk about all of them. What do you want to start with? Hmm. I let's start with gay rights. I think I want to start with gay rights as well. Yeah. So there was a case. I I. I Wish I wrote the names down for these things. Basically, the the case was yeah. Please find that for me. Yeah, I got it. That there's a a design a website designer who makes websites for weddings in Colorado, and 
she is a Christian and she claims that she has holds personal belief that she believes marriage is between a man and a woman and a a gay couple enlisted her services and wanted to create a website for their wedding am i am i wrong you're kind of right kind of wrong there was no gay couple she made up a hypothetical gay couple you're right you're right there was no actual person on the other end of this that's correct I, I was wrong about this. So so she's trying she's trying to expand her services um to include something else. Like I maybe she had maybe okay, yeah, I think I messed this up. She had done designs of like of flyers or invitations for wedding websites. Before. I don't think she was looking to expand oh, she's looking to expand into websites. websites. Okay. And there's a Colorado law um that protects against um, it protects from being discriminated against by businesses for all of your basic, like, like for religion, for race, for, um, sexual orientation, whatever it might be. Um, this designer was looking at this Colorado law and thinking, oh, if I expand into wedding websites, then I might be forced to produce a message that I don't agree with. Right. That being that she would have to make a website for gay marriage. Um, and so she she sued against that Colorado law. And initially in Colorado, it was upheld. Um, on the basis that... Or on, on kind of the same basis as all anti-discrimination laws. That you can't deny services because of people's personal characteristics. Right goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court six to three overturns the Colorado ruling. So the main point from, and I think it was, I think it was Neil Gorsuch. It might've been Brett Kavanaugh who wrote the majority opinion. The main point was that these wedding designs are, or these websites are expressive speech. And that's a really key word here. Yeah. Um, because he's trying to say, okay, if, if the service that someone is providing, it can be called expressive speech, then they can't be forced to say something that they don't believe in because of their own race, religion, beliefs, whatever it might be. Um, the dissent obviously was, was vehement that, um, and it pointed to cases like the the case that upheld the right to gay marriage, mm-hmm. um, that this kind of discrimination was unconstitutional. What do you think? Well, I think it's crazy that this like, like core tenant of like Civil Rights Act type stuff of not you know discriminating in the marketplace based off of intrinsic and immutable characteristics. Um, that's kind of like the line, right? It's like gay, uh, gay race, religion, sexuality, right? Gender. These are things that you can't change about yourself. And because you can't change them about yourself, you shouldn't be punished for in the marketplace of a few services. Mm -hmm. This goes against that. Uh, and the way that they use expressive speech, I, I don't, like, I've never heard that before in a way used like this. 
to deny services to people before. And it makes me think, it just makes me feel like they were looking for a reason. And that, that's how I feel about this case is it's like they were just looking for a reason. And it, that becomes more obvious when you find out that the person who is cited as asking to make this website has come out and said that he didn't ever contact the designer once that he never interacted with her yeah that this was not something he even asked which means that where was her standing to go into court if this never even like happened what happened here yeah if this isn't even if he never went to her and demanded this what's the thing actually being solved it's almost like this is like an this was just a thought battle to be able to get the right on paper to discriminate against gay people yeah that is interesting that is very interesting. I I do wonder. I want to do a thought experiment because imagine like like if you have a Christian person who provides a service like this, mm-hmm. and say there's someone who believes in Satanism, right? And they 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 want to enlist her services to promote a wedding that is going to have a ceremony that's like eating babies, right? Does she need to make that? Does she need to provide that service? This ruling says no, right? Exactly. Yeah. This ruling says no. I mean, I would also say no to that. And then what's the difference? Well, I mean, the difference, I, 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 well, eating babies, I don't think is, I don't think there's, because eating babies is, is bad because you're committing harm to somebody else. Yes. What I'm, what I'm saying, there isn't anything like, but I know what you're saying. There isn't anything equivalent to that being that comes with being gay. True. But like, even if there is some religious, like being against Satanism or isn't the same as, oh, how how can I put this? No, because it's not, it's not that simple. If it was just make a website that says, oh, we're Satanists. Mm-hmm. then I think you should be forced to do that. Okay. Because the same way I believe you should be forced to, you know, do it if they're Muslim or Jewish. Sure. If it's going to be, you know, putting, eating babies on the website, that's going to be a little different because now you're displaying gore. That there, I think there's yeah. other things there. And you're promoting uh, something that's against the law. Right. So, but if it's just Satanism. Yeah. Then yeah, I'm cool with it. Then you should be forced to as a Christian. Okay. I do think that. I okay. totally think that. Um, yeah, what I think if, I'm with you. So then what happens if you're, um, you are Christian mm-hmm. and it's the 1960s and you believe interracial marriage is against your religion? Mm-hmm. Where does that go with this? Can someone say that, oh, it's an interracial marriage. I don't want to make a website for you. Oh, your interracial marriage. I don't want to make your, yeah. your floral decorations. Because that's expressive. Definitely. Arranging the way of the flowers, that's expressive. Well, I think, well, that's where, like, the court maintains power, right? Because they... They've now defined this new nebulous thing. Yeah, and on case by case, they get to decide what's expressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really a court... That's a good way to look at it. This is the court gaining more power to its... Giving more power to itself. Yeah. Definitely. And I just... You know, I think it is, it's so unfortunate. And we, we talk about so much. If there's two things that we talk about on the show, it's the power of the court and semiconductors. Those are the two <laughs> things that this show is about, yeah. honestly. Yeah. And man, we just took an ass kicking 
like liberal. I mean, I shouldn't. I don't know if I should say we because we will have some disagreements with the liberal side. Yes. In these cases, but the but this is just civil rights. Yeah, this is just civil rights yeah. getting it absolutely demolished. Yeah. And is baking a cake expressive speech? Like, where is this going to go? That's the thing. It's like baking a cake might not be expressing speech, but writing something on the cake. Right. Yeah. Writing something on the cake. Or exactly like putting the little putting the little statue or the little like sculpture, the chocolate sculpture of the yep. couple on the top of the cake. That's this gonna is be this is going to be a nightmare over the next few, couple of years. This is going to be an absolute nightmare. It's yeah. going to be a train wreck because so many people are going to take this ruling and sue about all of the things, everything. Totally. Um, I think the country has moved. I don't think that the the anti gay right is as prominent as it was. Unfortunately, it's actually gaining steam since the whole transgender panic. Yeah. Um, and like the groomer label being thrown around online and on TV and everything. The support among conservatives for gay marriage is that is the worst it's been since two thousand five. So it's actually going in the wrong direction on the conservative side mm. for the first time. For the first time, the trend changed. Independents and Democrats are still moving to greater and greater approval. But Republicans are getting worse approval. And, you know, that means that some crazy cases can come out of, you know, some Alabama, Mississippi areas yeah. that have like one or two gay people in it. And the conservative Supreme Court. Right. And some crazy cases can keep pushing what is expressive speech quote-unquote whatever expressive speech is yeah and they can keep defining that as ever they see need see fit yeah so it will be interesting like to see updates right to how expressive speech is defined to see it like will will the court be rational Mm -hmm. about it or will they start saying I, i don't know like servicing your car is expressive speech i was literally just thinking that servicing your car Every mechanic solves something differently. It's my art. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, dude, you can always find a way to argue these things. It's all about the interpretation here. Yeah. And it's... it's Well, I mean, I guess to me, I can see these websites like being considered expressive speech, mm-hmm. which is why I'm looking to see if they come out with a ruling that really is infuriating and clearly across the line. To say is expressive speech. Well, how, wait. Let me let me put your hypothetical back at you. How do you feel about the Christian being forced to make a Satanist website for a church for a wedding? I think you have to introduce another principle, like something about how people don't have to portray illegal acts. The weird thing here is like like speech, right? Like the definite how we define speech is so crucial in terms of in terms of civil rights and the freedoms of people i am i am so against restrict like restricting speech and, and like oh, i think almost everyone is um but but i am also i'm wary of hate speech i'm wary i'm extremely wary of discrimination mm-hmm. But it's, I don't know, it's just hard for me to, on just an ideal, like on a theoretical, purely theoretical level, it's hard for me to think that that there aren't going to be some situations where like, where it, it makes sense for someone to decline to produce something 
or provide a service. Well, I think people should be able to decline to produce something. If some, if a conserv, if 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 a Republican politician came up to me and was like, "I want to hire you for your data services," mm-hmm. I'm going to say no. Sure, sure, and but, I, that should be the right because it's not an immutable characteristic. Well, I mean that's that's different. Like anyone can, any employee can decline any employer from trying to hire them. No, that's, not if you're. Not if you're gay, and it's not not if you're gay looking for services, and it's not for expressive speech, then you can't decline them. Well, this is this is a client seeking the services of a business. So if you were oh, if I was in a business, if you were whatever. a business, yeah, that were providing and right, you're providing I was an services, LLC, yeah, and yeah, then you think you should be able to decline your services to a Republican? Totally, because it's not an immutable characteristic, and currently that's how the law is. A political affiliation is not protected by the Civil Rights Act. But you can say religion is a mutable characteristic. That's a different line. I don't think it is. I don't. I think religion is more important to someone's core identity than a political... That's really hard for you to argue. And I think no, it isn't. You in that argument. Totally not, dude. Religion is like a part of your culture. It's about... It's so much more spiritual than you just... You could say race is that too. Race is what? It's part of your culture. That's what I'm saying. Race... And religion are a part of your culture. Oh, something oh in- sorry. You could say politics is too. No. Absolutely. No. Are you kidding me? People are at least as tribal about politics as they are about religion. No, they're not. They totally... Have you been on Twitter? No, they're not as... They're not. They are not as tribal. It's not remotely close. Religion and political affiliation are not on the same level of civil right protections. There's no shot. Well... I mean, I, I know under the law not. they're not, but I'm saying they shouldn't be, and there's no shot they ever convince me that they need to be. I, but again, I think I think you're doing that by evading the idea of whether they are similarly identifiable or like mutable. I think you could totally say that people get just as locked into their religious views as they do into their political views, or okay, they can so, change them just as easily. Okay, changing them just as okay. So this is how we would have to solve this problem. Sure, we don't have the data right now, so we can't solve this problem. But this is how we would need to solve it. We need to look at the rates of shifting from religion and political affiliation. And we need to see how likely it is that someone changes their politics over time mm-hmm. and how likely it is someone changes their religion over time. And I guarantee you that people change their politics more often than they change their religion. And because of that, politics, political affiliation is more. I think I can still get you even on that logic because I'll just go to, I'll go to some other completely random variable that does change only as much as religion changes. Like maybe your favorite food happens to change as often as religion changes. So then it means... But that's not what, core to your identity. That's not core to your identity. So then there's other things you're breaking in that Why one. not? Because it's not. Why not? Come on. You can't tell me someone say a Fubian pizza is core to the identity of belief in Christ. There's no there's no comparison. You could you can totally make these arguments. Like you can say favorite food, you can say um like say favorite movie series, right? Like would would you say that your love of Star Wars is core to your identity? I think it's pretty easy to argue <laughs> that it is. But I'm not a different person with like there is no I mean, this is, I, I don't think this is, this would never stand up in any type of legal stuff ever. You don't think so? No, 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 no. Okay. No. I don't know. But so do you think that you shouldn't be able to refuse services to anybody? That you should be able to or you shouldn't be No, able that you to? should be able to refuse essential, um, essential speech to anybody. Es- what is expressive speech? Expressive speech to anybody. That you should be able to refuse it. For everyone, or are you that? You if sh- anything, maybe maybe you stick to the actually immutable characteristics: gender, sexual orientation, race, and kick the religion out. Maybe. All right. That way, we my argument goes to shit. 
if we're focusing on just those three. Yeah, right? that, that's fair. Yeah, I've got nowhere else to go. Yeah, that's fair. So all right, now I'll I'll stick by with the defending of the religion as an immutable characteristic, but that that that, that that's a conversation for a whole other day. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next case here. Um, Can we do affirmative action next? Yeah, let's do affirmative action. Okay, so Supreme Court pretty much gutted affirmative action. Totally out of it. Yeah. You last week or two weeks ago we talked about past educational related rulings in the Supreme Court in the his, in, in our history. Um, and one came out of the 70s. It's 1974, 1972, around there. That was actually a good ruling by a conservative Supreme Court that basically created modern-day affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And now a conservative Supreme Court, 50 years later, has gone away with affirmative action that it itself created 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, this... I'm not surprised. I, I'm not surprised. We either. talked about this right before the podcast. I think, I think legally, it, it's kind of, it is kind of hard to argue for the legality of affirmative action in the face of the Fourteenth Amendment. In my opinion, I I read a review like of the case that argued that um, the court was kind of doing away with the understanding of race-based law or discrimination-based law that has in based decisions that have come out over the past um, century, right? Um, and realizing that they are meant to decrease discrimination against um, underprivileged minorities, right? And bring them more, bring their opportunity more in line with, uh, with larger majorities or with, with privileged minorities or majorities. Um, and I, I understand that, but that's where this to me becomes more of kind of like a spirit of the law versus the letter of the law thing, because I think it is, it is legitimately hard to say that affirmative action does not discriminate on the basis of race. It does. It, it takes race into account to give certain races a better chance and to give certain races a worse chance. Now we consider that okay and even helpful because it boosts the underprivileged races and it brings down the privileged races. Um, but I think there are ways to do that that are based more specifically on the privilege rather than the race. And we'll get into that. Here's my issue with this. The 14th Amendment was specifically written after the Civil, after the civil War mm-hmm. and with race in mind. Mm-hmm. They were conscious of equal protection, meaning bringing blacks equal to whites. That yes. was the goal of the 14th Amendment. So the, I think the law was race conscious, okay? And an example of this was, this is, this is where, again, uh, a little bit of history here. The Freedmen's Bureau was created in 1865. And the Freedmen's Bureau's job was to provision, clothe, and fuel for the immediate and temporary shelter and supply of destitute and suffering refugees and freedmen and their wives and children. Now, when we go into the definition of freedmen, the definition of freedmen is someone who is formerly enslaved who has been released from slavery. Mm-hmm. We know in America that all freedmen were black. Yes. Right? So this is a law in 1865 passed right alongside the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and it's explicitly discriminating based off race. 
Yes. This does not say provision clothes and fuel for all Americans. It says only for black Americans. But but I think that's the important difference. It's not saying for black Americans. They set up, it's, I, I'll say this, Sure. they set up a specific power that was aiming to reunite African-American families, not families separated from the war, mm. only black families. But th- does it say black families or does it say families of freed men? It says, it, this is African-American families. Okay. I think that's an important difference. Do you think I, freed men makes it an important difference? We know that all of them were black. Well, that's my, my whole point is, is it's getting at the root of the issue. The root of the issue is that these people were slaves and now they need help. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the root of the issue with affirmative action is there are a ton of people who are way less privileged than a ton of the other people who apply to college. And that privilege should be taken into account when they're being considered for admission which I completely agree with. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing. I think it should be the privilege that is taken into account, not the race, even though the race often will align with the privilege or lack thereof. That's fine. That's fine. And I understand that. But I'm yeah. talking about from a legal perspective. I don't think their argument holds because I think that the, 14th, the, the 14th Amendment was conscience of race mm-hmm. and the Freedmen's Bureau being created by the same political party that was ruling uh, that created the 14th amendment passed the freedmen's bureau that explicitly focused only on race and i'm saying that this doesn't i don't think it holds up because we're taught judges are trying to interpret the 14th amendment Mm -hmm. in a way that's totally out of lockstep with how the people who wrote the 14th amendment believed it should have been used well this this is comes into a larger discussion of like how mm, mm. I think the the people who wrote the Fourteenth Amendment thought it should have been used. Yes, for it, it had race in mind mm-hmm. because it saw enormous racial discrimination, yeah. and it wanted to decrease that. Yes, and I think there's an argument to be made here that remove, like this case, for example, focused on the lower acceptance rates of Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. You can make a case that that banning this type of affirmative action is also taking race-based discrimination into account, and it is trying to get rid of it with this ruling, mm-hmm. right? Like you can you can definitely I think you can definitely spin it to say it's actually matching up exactly to the the goals of the original writers. Well, no. The goals of the original writers were to get African Americans on equal playing field as whites. Yes. That was the goal of the original writers here. So we know that Asian Americans don't have the same issue at, with discrimination as black Americans. We know that. Sure. But isn't isn't the larger issue the discrimination, not whether it's black and white? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't think... I think that laws can take race into account. I think that should be allowed. Mm-hmm. I think in certain areas, there are definitely areas where you need race to be taken into account. I think there needs to be, it needs to, but sure, if you want to say that, because a good example that John Roberts talks about in the opinion is that a, a black kid growing up in suburbia doesn't face the same discrimination as a poor white kid living in West Virginia. And I understand that. Mm-hmm. So there should be some type of multivariate analysis, you know, trying to figure out who 
a dis- who faced the most amount of discrimination growing up, that's fine. Mm. But you can't throw race out of that equation. You can't say race is thrown out. I, I think race needs to be in it. But if, so the, the black kid growing up in the wealthy suburb, mm-hmm. I think his, his blackness becomes important in the equation only if he's been discriminated against on that basis throughout his life, right? Only if he's lost opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, but what if I'm not confident saying that, I mean, maybe you are, maybe this is where I'm wrong, that simply that anyone who has grown up black in this country has faced discrimination. I think anybody who has grown up black in this country has faced discrimination one way or another at some point in their life. I think it's impossible to make that argument. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Because you, so. you, what you need is to sample every black person in the country to say that's true. That's the only way to do that. You can, but we make, dude, we make policy based off aggregates all the time. We can, we don't have to say, okay, one fringe case doesn't. Have, we make, we make policy off based off means and averages all the time. Sure. So, and then, so look. But you know where race does play an important role? Mm. When we're talking about a white kid and a black kid in the same poor neighborhood in Mississippi, the black poor black kid is way worse off and faces way more discrimination than the poor white one. Still face a lot of discrimination. Sure. Both should get, you know, good affirmative action treatment in my eyes because mm-hmm. class should be a factor here. Sure. But the black should get more. Cause they're gonna have a harder time than the white kid. Absolutely. No doubt in my mind. No doubt in my mind. Hmm. So yes, should it be an only factor? No. Should you, should should no. Should there be a multivariate analysis where you're allowed to include race? I I absolutely think so, and okay. I don't think that breaks the Fourteenth Amendment at all. Well, I just think so. What we haven't brought up yet is the the alternative to affirmative action is this idea of an adversity score, and right. I think Biden presented this idea as well, um, where he would hope that universities would start taking adversity faced by a student uh, maybe so socioeconomic status into account in considering them for admission mm-hmm. this is where i think the policy should go and uc davis and its med school um because the case that we that actually upheld affirmative action in the early 70s also ex- like prevented uc davis from doing their specific part of affirmative action they were involved in that case so what they had instead is an adversity score where in addition to grades and test scores extracurriculars they consider the amount of diversity a student has gone through and so they they'll ask whether the the student has like two parents in the household something like whether they've ever had to be a supporting like a supporting member Mm -hmm. as far as um the money in the household and a few other questions and it's given them one of the most diverse student bodies in the medical schools across the country. Yeah. So to me, I I think I'm not, hmm, I, I know racism exists. I know systemic racism exists. Um, but I think finding more specific ways to identify who that is affected, um, and how, whether it's like short answer questions about it, whether um, people are encouraged more to write about it in their essays, or whatever it might be, that seems, I, I prefer that method 
to something that is completely sweeping. Um, but you, you, what you've just described sure. is the same thing that I'm talking about. It's the exact same thing. Because you're taking race into account. How? Because you're saying if you've, you're, if you've faced race-based discrimination, I'm, I'm taking the presumption that everybody had ra- has faced race-based discrimination. That's my assumption. Everyone who is, ex- who ever, yes, if you, if you have grown up black in America, you have faced race-based discrimination at some point in your life along the line. Okay. I'm not, but go. You don't think so? Ahead. No. Oh, man. Okay. I mean, I just don't know, like, where you get that. I think it's just it's just a blatant assumption that comes from uh, believing, like, understanding the history of black people and that, yes, in over history, they're more discriminated against. But the idea that every single one has experienced it, even up to, like, now, that that seems almost as absurd to me. We're talking about tens of millions of people. Every single one. Do you think every single poor person faces like is hardcore discriminated against in our society and deserves the same treatment based across them? Do you think that's true? Well, dis- discrimination in when it comes to poverty, it's hard because everyone is discriminated against based on the amount of money they have. Right. Because you just can't get right. the same stuff. Right. But someone who has 40 grand... Sure. Making 40 grand a year and their parent pours every cent into them mm-hmm. versus a parent who makes 40 grand and doesn't spend a penny on them, mm-hmm. but they have the same test scores and the same everything. Yeah. The UC Davis model has trouble, has trouble capturing the difference between those two people. But are you implying that, that, that the black kid is much more likely to have nothing poured into it? No, no, no. no. What I'm implying is, what I'm saying here is you're comfortable generalizing the $40,000 family income same across both. Okay. But you're not comfortable generalizing the same black hold base to black households. That's fair. And that's I, what I'm saying. Yeah. And I do, I do think I am comfortable with that. Okay. I am more comfortable. I think I'm more comfortable saying that the, the household economic status shouldn't the household economic status have to be proven in a supplement to say okay well how did your family spend their money on you compared to the other person so we can actually find out who faced more discrimination between these two people i would prefer that but i i don't know what questions you would specifically ask right so i'm gonna say the exact same thing i would also prefer that for race but i don't know what questions that someone would be comfortable asking and answering for something like that the, well don't you think that something like um I think the socioeconomic proxies are generally good at, like, they are good at aligning with race. That's why the UC Davis model works, mm-hmm. is the questions it asks do, like, it does end up accounting for race because that's that's the reason that discrimination is bad because it is socioeconomically kept black people down in this country. And so by by kind of going more to the source with that you end up with a more diverse student body i mean i i understand that but i also in these uc davis essays you're allowed to mention your race right mm-hmm. so they might just be picking based off that and then that actually comes to the core of my total conclusion on this because we've argued a lot about this but at the end of the day i actually don't know if it matters at all mm. because john roberts in his opinion said that you are allowed to accept essays that take race into account yeah and they talk and then they talk about their discrimination you can 
you can measure how they dealt with that adversity and put that into your thought process when you admit them or not. And I completely agree with that. And I don't think that this is going to change affirmative action as much as we might think, to be honest. Harvard even has come out and Harvard's like has taken that quote from John Roberts explicitly. And they're like, okay, we'll follow your rule, John Roberts. We promise we'll follow exactly what you said. Yeah. No worries. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's how it should be. Like if, if, if someone has something to write about, about how they've been discriminated against, then then yes, then I then that's when I think the affirmative action should help them, right? Like that's that's kind of my whole point mm-hmm. is it should be reflected in something and whether that's something that you've written about or the socioeconomic status that your family has. Do you think that there's anything wrong with having to prove that America is racist in your essays? Do you think that there's anything wrong? I think there's something systemically wrong with that, that you're asking black kids to prove that racism exists. That's not that's not how I see it. I don't think they're they're being told to prove racism exists. I think they're being asked to show how racism has affected them. And if racism has affected them, then it makes sense that it should be taken into account. Okay. I just think it's a hard thing to say, like, well, then someone's picking reading through these stories and saying, eh, this racism wasn't really affecting this kid. Like <laughs> he might have said that racism was after reading this, I don't know. This is getting, you see what I mean? It's mm. getting a little tricky because now you're getting a lot of scrutiny onto this and I don't think that it's fair. I guess. But, but again, I think you can just take, you can just take the other route because you can, if someone has just checked the block, the box that says black, then they're, they're also making an assumption there. Like, like, okay. Yeah. They, um, like, oh, they checked black. So they've obviously faced discrimination when, but no, I'm not saying that though. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you build out an equation and, and it has like, 10 factors yeah which is also and race is one which was already the case in this case like yeah that was what they were presenting anyways. well were they were they did they talk about income and everything i don't know they didn't talk about socioeconomic That's but it saying. is that like they have test scores right performance so income needs to be in there too other socioeconomic factors other than race need to be in there mm-hmm. that's what i'm saying and that needs to be the analysis on how this gets in but you can't check race off i don't think that's fair okay i, I think the best the best way i could articulated is this way if there are 50 white kids Mm -hmm. who have the exact same test scores and grades and come from the same socioeconomic background um and have the same extracurriculars and 50 black kids who have all of those same stats exactly i don't think i don't think 40 of those black kids should be admitted and only 10 of those white kids. If you're saying 50, you have to get admitted. I don't, I, I think it should be 25 and 25. I think if that's, the only differentiating factor is race. No, no. Cause there, there is in a situation like that, mm-hmm. the black kid will always face more discrimination than the white kid in that given circumstance for with everything that goes on with how the police treat the different races, how, like, there is generational trauma related to racial discrimination. There are differences that go into play. There's subtle, unexplainable interactions that you have with people on a day-to-day basis that makes being white and being black a different experience in America, whether you like it or not. Mm. Mm. Do you think Do you think we could get, like, can we get into what does make that different, though? Because to me, what makes that different is, comes in, like, people who aren't like you treating you as different right but what if 
the those black kids grew up in a community of other supportive black people, right? And those white kids grew up in the community of other supported white people. And well, so, look, sure, they have... There's, there's thousands of different examples of this, okay? But, like, one of them would be the difference on how drug drug enforcement is difference between the two people. Sure. You get a community of 50 white kids and 50 black kids. More black kids are going to jail than white kids. End of story. That's what's happening. Yes. You, um, more black kids are going to the cops called on them. End of story. Than white kids. That's yes. the truth. More black kids are not going to be treated with the same type of health care that white people do because black people have worse health care outcomes overall. But I, I, again, I think we, you're using, you're using generalizations. You're using like no, broad totally not. statistics. I'm not. Black women are actually less likely to receive epidurals during pregnancy because their pain is not as believed as white women's pain you're that's proving my point you're using you're using a broad statistic like black women are more likely you're using something that's general across races and what i'm saying is sure if you randomly sampled you just 50 black kids and 50 white kids Mm -hmm. right you could say yes more of those black kids are going to jail right but and you can say yes they're more likely to have have gotten drug busted or gotten pulled over by the cops but what if those 50 black kids, these specific 50 black kids have never gotten pulled over the cop by the well, cops. Well, because then you build then you build out a formula and then you figure it out which ones. You take race and you take money and you take parental status, all those things. You plug it into a big formula and you get an answer. But throwing race out is bad and dumb. <laughs> you should stop defending it. <laughs> I, I just I'm hmm, I'm just skeptical of I feel like taking race into account is necessarily putting people into a very large box. And I agree with where the boxes are. But I think when you're talking about something like college admissions, and it's a very specific selection process per applicant, right? I don't think I wouldn't want to put that, like to look at the very enormous box I'm putting them in to determine that outcome. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Again, I don't know how much of effect this is actually going to have at the end of the day anyway. I don't think it matters. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say I don't think it matters, but also the amount of people it affects, the amount of people that go to elite universities in the United States are so small anyway. Yeah. It's not even like, like I, the amount of people that go to a, a school that has an above 50% admission rate, mm-hmm. it's not even half of college kids. It's so few people even go to schools above half at 50% admission. Mm. Most people go to schools that have 75% admission. Uh, so it's just, it's just not, it honestly, when it sometimes I, I, I see these things talking about college admission stuff, it seems like a upper middle class elitist problem yeah. in a lot of instances. Yeah. But unfortunately, the only person who's getting negative affected here is the poor black kid who's trying to get out. But you don't, but whatever. (laughs) We'll move on from affirmative action. Yeah. We'll see how this goes in the next couple of years. Sure. Um, I'm just, I'm really hopeful that I see the UC Davis model adopted by most of these colleges. Yeah. And the student bodies remain just as diverse, if not get more diverse. I promise you, I promise you they won't. Okay. I promise you they won't. I think, I promise you they won't. And I was going to say something else about affirmative action. One more thing, and then I was going to move on. But I think I don't remember anymore. Too bad. Too bad. Okay. The last one. So this might be, this is probably the, this is definitely the least like 
overall important big picture mm-hmm. important but i think in the in the near term it's absolutely vital so yeah the supreme court declared that joe biden's student loan debt cancellation plan was illegal um so what biden was proposing is a, a cancellation of either ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars of debt, um, I don't remember what changes that um, that number. Well, the twenty thousand is if you um, applied and received a Pell Grant. Okay, ten thousand is no Pell Grant. Twenty thousand is with Pell Grant. Okay, so Pell Grant goes to goes to students with lower socioeconomic oh, yeah. um, statuses or just less wealthy families. Um, and Biden, so he wanted to cancel that amount of debt. It would apply to students who are making less than one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year, or or not students anymore, but people with student loan debt. Um, and the Supreme Court said it was not legal. So Biden was trying to use the Heroes Act, which we talked about before, mm-hmm. to uh, as a provision to make this executive action. The Heroes Act. We, talk, we talked about this context. It came out after September 11th, and it was meant to allow the executive branch to take action to remove some of the economic burden from people who were either in the military or who were being affected by a national emergency. Right. COVID comes along. Big national emergency. Definitely a national emergency. Yes. Um, Trump declared it a national emergency in March 2020, and when Biden issued this executive action, it was still technically at least a national emergency, right? Because of this, I think Biden was within his rights. Yeah, I think this is totally, you put it, letter of the law. I think this is totally in the letter of the law. It is literally a national emergency. And you read out what you said from the HEROES Act, because that was great that you put that in the notes. Yeah, so the HEROES Act specifically says, it, it authorizes the Secretary of Education to waive or modify any requirement or regulation applicable to the student financial assistance programs as deemed necessary with respect to an affected individual who suffered direct economic hardship as a direct result of a national emergency. Beautiful. So, right, we have we have individuals who suffered direct economic hardship as a direct result of a national emergency. Actually, this is one place where I, I was skeptical. Right. I thought... Maybe, like, if there was a, a counter-argument, this is where they could have focused, but they didn't because they wanted to wipe it out in a more sweeping way. Right, like, I thought you would have gone after the suffer direct economic hardship, Yeah. right? Because then you're like, oh, you need everyone to prove that they suffered economic hardship. Yeah, there's plenty of people who made a windfall from COVID. Right. Right? I mean, maybe you could say, like, oh, the country underwent inflation. Um, maybe, but, but I don't... That wouldn't pass. Yeah. But they didn't want to. They didn't want to go on that. Mm-hmm. So... Instead, they were really focusing on these first this first phrase that Secretary of Education can waive or modify requirements or regulations. The majority says the language to waive or modify um, and the further language that comes um, later on, which allows the secretary to replace the waived or modified terms with new terms or conditions. Mm-hmm does not imply that they can make a move that is this economically and politically significant. And this is where it seems so shaky. That's just, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Ridiculous. It makes no sense. So it's, it's like, like 
the law doesn't say anywhere what extent you can go to. No, it doesn't say that at all. No. It's just... I mean, but again, this is where letter versus spirit, right? You were talking about the context of the 14th Amendment in the affirmative action case. Mm -hmm. I think kind of if you're looking at the spirit of the law, I, I think it makes sense that they're assuming that they they didn't want to give the president this much unilateral power to affect to change student loans. Maybe you disagree with that. I disagree with that because I disagree with that because the during the heroes during 9/11 mm-hmm. Bush then did that and used the Heroes Act to cancel and modify student loans. Did he cancel them? Cancel is a rough word. Cancel is not the right word, but okay. modify. Well, because because this is part of what what, what does I... cancel mean? And what does cancel mean? Well, by it's that waive sense? or modify. Yeah. So what's... it's waive or modify provisions of the loan. Right. So this is where, and I was looking into provisions, but nowhere in the in the decision do they talk about the provisions term. Yeah. Waive or modify. So so the history of uses of the Heroes Act, it was that. It, it waived or modified much smaller parts of it, like or smart parts of the loan, like needing to give consent in writing versus verbally, or like timelines that you had for to pay at certain deadlines. They never tried to go for the principle of the loan, um, which is, which I think kind of give like that gives the majority a little bit of standing, right? right. The, the fact that they never things. used that, yeah. 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 On the other hand, in the dissent, Elena Kagan, she gives this thought experiment of like, what if there was a terrorist nuking Chicago? Mm-hmm. Right. And you have all these people who are affected and they're, they're fleeing, like a ton of people die, but a ton of people are also fleeing the scene for the radiation. They lose their jobs. They lose their homes. In that situation, wouldn't it make sense for the president to cancel their student loan debt? Obviously. Of course. And that would have never been challenged if he called on the HEROES Act to do that. Right. So in that way, it does seem like this is super legal because, yes, that would be a national emergency. This was a national emergency. Right. So then then it gets into the pickier part. It seems like the judges are now picking and choosing what is a national emergency. Yes. Right. They're, they. It seems like the president doesn't actually have the authority to declare national emergencies. The judges get to decide when a national emergency is and what isn't. And the thing is, they, they specifically cite how... Biden, in a speech three weeks after he made this executive action, said um, the pandemic is over. Yeah, I know. And I, when that happened, when that happened, I literally thought, I'm like, that is going to come back and bite him in the ass. Yeah. That is going to that is going to be so – because then my dad started ranting to me. I mean, he's like, he just said the pandemic's over. And now he's doing this because of the pandemic. Yeah. But it's because, but it's retroactive. It's like obviously that this is talking about economic effects for the past year. Mm. It doesn't need to be economic effects for today. True, true. It was. It was. It had been affecting people. But what I was thinking is, why? Why hadn't you planned this before? Yeah. Why hadn't you done this in the February after you took off in twenty twenty one? Yeah. No one would have argued with the uh, with the significance of COVID. Then. I think there's some political reasons for that. I think there are. I mean, but that's just here, there, there. I don't know because I'm sure. if I could ever prove that. But I think that there's plenty of reasons that if he would have done that, Joe Manchin wouldn't have hopped on the American Rescue Plan. Okay. You know what I mean? Sure. But there's plenty of reasons why that didn't happen at that point. Yeah. But that makes I, sense. Yeah. I just, it, it, yeah, from my perspective, I think this falls very well within the letter of the law easily. I think Kagan's example shows that it's in the spirit of the law as well. Yeah. Um, and now I don't know exactly 
where it goes from here. And what makes me so frustrated is I don't even believe that these Supreme, that this court, that these plaintiffs even had standing. Yeah. I don't even think that they, that the Supreme Court should have even heard the case mm-hmm. because there were no negative beneficiaries. There were no one getting negatively affected by this. And that's one of the core parts of bringing a case to, ju- to, to the court is being negatively affected from the law. And no one was. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, they made the argument they made for this was extremely flimsy. It, the um, it was a, a state instrument like corporation that administered loans um, that that brought the case, but then the state of Missouri, which had created this corporation, like brought it on their behalf, which clearly shouldn't be possible. And there um, were even leaks of employees of Mohella. Uh, that's the institution. Yeah. Yeah. That's the corporation. Employees of Mohella saying like, we don't even want to do this. Like we are totally cool with the debt cancellation. Yeah. Internal memos going back and forth saying that, Mm -hmm. but still the case got brought up here. Yeah. Right. It's just so ridiculous. It's completely um, politicized. But now are you, do you have anything else to say about the case itself? I don't think so. Okay. Cause now Biden's going on a different path. And he's going to talk, and he's trying to do it through the Higher Education Act of 1965, mm-hmm. which I think was the better way to go about it from the beginning. Yeah. I think that the Higher Education Act just gives the De- Department of Education the authority to cancel the loans in and of itself. I don't think that they have to deal with anything. I, it just It's not as sweeping, so you'll have to make some type of argument to the Department of Education, whether that be like a very simple email. Mm. But if it's done right, I think it could be very, very streamlined and very easy to cancel a certain amount of your loans. Okay. So there's some things with that. Um, Biden is talking about not giving any benefits to your your, um, negative effects to your credit. If you miss payments for another year, Yeah. interest will still be accruing, but you're not going to get negatively affected if you don't pay them. Mm. Um, I think he's also going to be talking about bringing down the income-based income-based repayment programs. I saw that. Which is huge. Yeah. Right? Because that's actually huge. It's going to bring it from 10, 10 to, to five. 5. 10 to 5 is huge. Yeah. And if you pay for your student loan for 20 years, it goes away. So bringing that down from 10 to 5 is pretty massive. Mm-hmm. So I think that's good too. Yeah. Um, I just think it's a shame it didn't happen. You know, it would have... And now, I mean, this is good for inflation. More money out of the pockets of americans less less <laughs> purchasing going on so that's good for inflation at least. sure yeah yeah uh, from and a cynical point of view i i mean i have seen that that potentially 20 percent of student debt holders are at risk of defaulting once payments resume yeah it's gonna so, be a nightmare so that's fun it's gonna be a nightmare but i think like that's the situation where you can write and you that biden should be setting up a portal right now to email the department of education so that the department of education can take authority through the higher education act immediately you know that's what needs to be happening right now yeah and i hope he's getting on with that hopefully all right guys i think i think that's all for a long current event that was a long current events yeah oh you know what last current event uh we got the iowa caucus date january 15th for -hmm. all you political election junkies like me we are only six months away from the train wreck of the republican primary and i am so excited. Yeah. And the first debate is next month. First de- which is going to be so fun. I can't wait. Are you going to be around to live stream it? Oh my god, I don't know. Ah. Oh, 
I don't know. That's so depressing. Yeah, I'm. I apologize to our I mean, maybe, maybe it'll go before I leave. Maybe yeah, August eleventh like, is the. I'm not going to be here August eleventh either. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. <laughs> okay, so um, getting getting into our book club. <laughs> okay, book club. Um, what are we reading, Ben? We are reading Supreme Inequality by Adam Cohen, um, chronicling the Supreme Court decisions that have basically that have hurt the country over the past yeah. 50 years. Yeah, that's um, a good summary. Yeah. Every, everything sucks. <laughs> <laughs> this is why everything sucks. Yeah, exactly. So this, this chapter was about democracy, um, and it started with a really riveting story yeah. of Bush v. Gore. So this is a case that I had heard. Like, I remember hearing about this from my dad, from sure. my parents, um, for a while. Basically... In the 2000 election, when Al Gore was running against George Bush, uh, George W. Bush, there was a there was something up in Florida, basically. So there there was word coming in that there was a problem with the original vote count. Yeah. And on December 8th, the Florida Supreme Court ordered a statewide manual recount of undervotes okay so this is what i want to talk about what does undervote mean so undervote i i you know i've watched a couple documentaries and read a lot about this so what is an undervote so one of the problems with the voting ballots or whatever was in some retirement communities and some black and hispanic communities they use these thing called butterfly ballots Mm -hmm. and on a butterfly ballot you have to do like a basically like a hole punch on who you want to vote for and what was happening was a lot of people were voting for your congr- for their congressional representative and their state representative, but then weren't voting for president. And then when they reexamined these ballots, they saw that the president one was slightly dimpled, but it wasn't totally pushed through. Mm-hmm. And that's what became a, called a dimpled chad. Mm-hmm. And well, what do we do with these dimpled chads? Do we count them? They obvi- these people obviously showed the intent to vote for this person. Mm-hmm. They even though they didn't breach the paper, yeah, is that meaning that their vote is invalid? Or other examples is uh, there were a lot of votes for Pat Buchanan at a very and Pat Buchanan was a third party candidate who was very very staunch Republican populist, kind of the pre Trump Trump, and a lot of Democrats were voting for Pat Buchanan, and like and it's like wait a second, and it was a problem with the ballot system, and a lot of people were accidentally voting for Pat. Pat Buchanan. So what do you do with these votes now? You know that they were incorrect. Pat Buchanan actually went out on TV and he said, he's like, something should be done about this because I definitely didn't get 5% of the vote out of, you know, wherever this county was. He's like, oh. I definitely, that didn't, definitely didn't happen. So huh. even he admitted something. <clears throat> so there was a lot going on mm-hmm. and the end of the night comes around and Bush ends up winning by like 500 and something votes. Yeah. And then the lawyers start getting involved. One of the lawyers is actually um, Ronald Klain. Ronald Klain was Joe Biden's first chief of staff. Really? Yeah. That, okay. Yeah, yeah. Ronald Klain's been around for a long time. So Ronald Klain is a lawyer for the Gore campaign, okay. and he's going to court. He's pushing all this stuff. And then it just explodes from there. And they get to this Florida Supreme Court. Florida Supreme Court says, okay, we need to do a count. And it's a statewide manual recount of all undervotes. It's not county-specific. We're not saying we're only counting the counties in the Democratic areas. We're doing a statewide counting of the undervotes. And then that brings us to the Supreme Court case and mm-hmm. where we're at. So the Supreme Court instantly halts the the recount because it needs to hear arguments because Bush v. Gore is about to be heard in the Supreme Court. 
And what they're arguing is whether or not to stop the count, to stop the recount. And amazingly, they decide five to four to stop the count. And they vote this along ideological lines. So the conservatives vote to stop it. During that discussion, conservatives during the oral arguments actually blamed voters for not properly filling up the ballot. Yeah. They blame voters for not hole punching the paper all the way through. Yep. Yeah. And so it had, in my opinion, probably the worst rationale that we've seen of any case. Thus I far. think that so far, this, this is the case. worst rationale. This yeah. is the most obviously ridiculous, just insulting. Yeah. Honestly insulting. Yeah. It's insulting to the integrity of the court that they decided in favor of it. Yeah. The rationale was that it violated Bush's rights under the Equal Protections Clause of the 14th Amendment, which we talk about all the time, because vote counters in dis- in different districts could count the ballots differently. So they're saying he is not equally protected because the votes aren't going to be counted the same way and, across the whole state. And this is getting into like that dimpled chad thing, yep. right? How much of a dent do you need to see? What does that mean? It, what if it's like hanging or something? A hanging chad was a common talking point at the time. So these are all which how these counties are going to count these ballots difference. Now, yeah. if you just heard that in a vacuum, you're like, oh, that makes sense. If you just heard that out of a vacuum and didn't have any context of the American system, that makes totally fine. That That, that makes sense to me. It makes total sense that different counties shouldn't have different rules on how they count ballots. How, how would the elections even work? That's how elections work right now. That's how all elections work. Every county has different rules yeah. for voting. Every county has different number of polling locations. Every county has different requirements to vote. So Paper ballots versus electronic ballots. There we go. So was it a break of the equal protection of the voters of Florida that different parts of Flo- of different parts of the state had different types of voting procedures where the people who had butterfly ballots getting disenfranchised and having their 14th amendment broken because they having a butterfly ballot and other people had lever ballots no one was making that argument no supreme court didn't even talk about that but it's george bush's right under the equal protection yeah unbelievable yeah. and because of that the supreme court specifically writes in the decision that this shouldn't be used as precedent. Yeah, they actually say that there should be no precedent here. And that's, and the author in Cohen says this, and I kind of agree, that that's where they're kind of calling themselves out. Right. Like, the whole point of the court is supposed to be to set precedent. Scalia even makes this so clear, and he says that his decisions, his whole career, Scalia is one of the most conservative justices on the court at the time, he has stated, stated in the past that all decisions do not exist in a vacuum and are supposed to be used as precedent in other cases. But in Bush v. Gore, he announced that this is a unique disposition. End me. Ridiculous. End Absolutely me. ridiculous. No, so, so no, this makes me feel like there's no ideology. It's power. And that's what I want to get at every time we talk about these cases. Yep. There is no ideology here. It's power. This is a power move. So there are two dissents. Um, two of the liberal justices actually concede that it is an equal rights or an equal protections violation Mm -hmm. but they're like why are we stopping the count let's just order everyone to let's just order florida to give specific instructions across the counties so that they can all be counted equally yeah which to me it seems like impossible to argue against yeah it's the obvious thing to do yeah yeah but past that 
two of the liberal justices, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, sign on to another dissent, which says this wasn't an equal protections violation, that the court was completely out of line for the decision, um, completely scathing. I mean, I think it would have been, I think it would have been a great decision for this to say, no, this was a break of the equal protection of George Bush, and we need to figure out a way to count them right. And then all these different counties that have different voting procedures that are obviously worse Mm -hmm. can go up and then use this as precedent to say, we need better voting regulation and the federal government needs to step in and help us. Totally. But that's not what happened at all, because the Supreme Court does not care about those types of values. (laughs) And they totally just, honestly... I view it as they were holding on to their own power just as much as they were trying to get Bush to be president. Because mm. they know that a, cons- that a Gore president would have destroyed the conservative justice. Well, it's weird because it's not majority. even their individual power because they're not going anywhere off the court. It's like they, they're trying to hold on to the party's power. Right. It's as partisan as it gets. Right. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And this all comes down, if you've been following along, this all comes back to Fortas not retiring when he did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just giving up the, the liberal court. Uh, it's okay. sad. And I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know where you even go from Bush v. Gore. Like, it's such a genuine, it's just such a plain attack. Yeah. And so it's sad because in the 60s, under the Warren court, as we've talked about before, we've had, you had awesome victories for voting rights. In 1962, there was Baker v. Carr. And this established the principle of one man, one vote, requiring both state legislature and congressional districts to have roughly equal populations. Could you imagine if congressional districts had different populations? That's insane to think about. I mean, kind of. But to me, gerrymandering doesn't, it's not far from that. Oh, it is. Well, it's very far from that. I mean, mean, it's, the districts have to have equivalent populations, but you're, but you're, Picking and choosing who's in the districts. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, yeah. So. Yeah, so yes. It, it. I mean, it's obviously not as bad. If you could have a state senate that was totally based off land compared to... Like just Yeah, just think about that. I mean, okay, yeah, come fair. on. We'd, we'd be talking about state le- state senates that would be like, six, like 58 Republicans, two Democrats, even though the population's 60-40. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? That's fair. In 1966, they upheld um, the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, now, what is preclearance of the Voting Rights Act? Because this is going to come up again later in our story. But um, some states and localities had to get approval from the Justice Department before they could change their voting laws. These states were mostly centered in the South, former Confederate states, um, and they obviously had long histories of discrimination and so needed to prove that there was reason to go through with these changes. Um, and the same year, the court struck down the poll tax, which is amazing. Huge. And this was all done in the 60s under the Warren court and going from all of this greatness to the Bush v. Gore decision. Insane. Yeah. Painful. Painful. Just regressive. So we were talking about how some of the language of the Equal Protection Clause in the Bush v. Gore case was actually beneficial. Like, And a lot of voting right advocates at the time actually thought that they could use it to make these things better beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, pushing for a new constitutional requirement to avoid disparate and unfair treatment of voters pulled right from yep. the court's decision um, because elections are administered in unequal ways all across the country. So if this language could be used to rectify that, that would be great. But that just didn't happen. No. No. 
the court said it shouldn't be precedent and the legislatures listened. So I don't, the court did not reference Bush v. Gore until 2013. Mm-hmm. That's the next time they referenced it. Oh, this is great. Thomas wrote a dissent on an Arizona voting case where he said state legislators have the broad authority in choosing their state's electors into the electoral college. Arizona legislature should be able to require proof of citizenship. Um, that, that, that was that was the that was the ruling. Sounds to me like the independent state legislature theory that we just talked about. It last actually time. is, and I thought about that. Right? Yeah. That's Thomas signing on to the independent state legislature theory in 2013. Yep. It's unreal, right? Yeah. It's scary. I mean, I'm I'm we're done with that. Yeah, we're done with that. We, thank God. Thank God. If you don't know what the independent state legislature theory is, it is literally that state legislators have the broad authority in choosing their states' electors to electoral college. Sorry, guys. I live next to a fire department, so <laughs> the, the fire truck just came by and scared the shit out of us. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that was super loud. Oh, jeez. Okay, I'm, I've am i got Veith. V, That's G- the next thing on my list, too. Yeah. Yeah. Next. So, what was that? When was that? What happened? I don't know when it was. 2004. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, so, Democrats were challenging Pennsylvania's gerrymandered districts. Basically, Republicans had gotten gone ham it was something like pennsylvania had an equivalent number of democrats and republicans but republicans uh, the distribution was like 65 35 yeah that makes sense republicans um because of how the districts were drawn but and democrats were trying to say that this was um unconstitutional but the court decided that the districts were legal in five to four ideological lines like always the rationale here was that there was no standard for the right way to draw districts. Mm-hmm. So the court didn't have a place in deciding whether it was legal or not. But uh, that what blows my mind is shouldn't the court be able to like create a body or demand a body is created that does figure out the right way to draw the lines? Like making an independent com- redistricting commission? Like other states mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. Other states have independent redistricting commissions. Shouldn't the court be like, hey, you got to do this. But don't states have don't states do that by instituting their own laws to require those? That's yeah. what I would expect. They do. I, it doesn't make sense to like unless there's some other legal precedent that the districts have to be fair, then it doesn't make sense to me that the court would order for one of those to be created. Well, the I, I'll tell you this, that I would I would say that you could be able to reference Baker v. Carr that established the one man one vote. And then that would be, do you think you can, can you use that to extrapolate anything more than you need an equal number of people in districts? Yeah, I totally think that. I totally think that. I totally think that you can use that type of argument to argue for proportional representation. But, but so you think proportional representation extends to where the lines of the district are? Yeah, I think, I think proportional representation can, needs to go down to the partisan level and saying, okay, we know that your state is 60, 40, Mm -hmm. your congressional districts have an obligation to send a delegation to the U S Congress at about 60, 40, making the most compact, making the most compact, um, districts possible. And when I say compact, it's like pretty looking. Yeah. Uh, Okay. I think I can get with that. And, but that's not what they decided. And they're cool with partisan gerrymandering, Mm -hmm. you know? And I just, and case after case happens where like, they try to challenge gerrymandering, and the court has never been able to decide on it. No, and, and there are some states that are so gerrymandered. 
man, I'm talking like Wisconsin. I mean, you showed me Illinois. Oh, Illinois is hilarious. Yeah. But Wisconsin is so grossly gerrymandered, um, not on the congressional level as much, yes, on the congressional level, but really on the state legislative level. The state assembly. Um, in 2018, the Democrats won the statewide Wisconsin vote by about four points mm-hmm. on the state assembly level. Um, but the delegation was 65% Republican, even though the Democrats won statewide. Wow. That's how gerrymandered it is over in Wisconsin. Huh. But it's hard because it's not so much as gerrymandered as it's just not proportional. And that's a problem. Yeah. And there needs to be a better way of dealing with this proportionality. Yeah. It's also, it's, I mean, it's definitely, it seems to be between an art and a science. Yeah. Because it's hard because the data is taken by these districts, Mm -hmm. right? So it's hard to know, like, where should the lines be drawn? I mean, I'm sure you can look at where there are blue districts versus red and you can try to, like, if you need more blue representation, you can make those blue districts a little bit bigger and encompass more of the red regions. Mm -hmm. But it's still pretty much a guessing game of like, how much of that do you do? Yeah. Where do you draw the lines? It's hard. I mean, that's what the a lot of the independent ones over in like the independent commission in Michigan um, has set up. I think there's uh, 10 or nine congressional districts and it's four pretty solid Democrat force, almost solid Republican and then one toss up. And that's kind of the way that they kind of do that. I think that's, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it if you're going to have this. Sure. And I think that the court should, in 2004 and again in 2018 could have taken the opportunity to end partisan gerrymandering in the country. Now, obviously, from a legislative perspective, it should have been done last year um, under the uh, For the People's Act. The Democrats tried to pass. I talked about that last week mm. or whenever we talked last. But um, you know, I just. So the partisan gerrymandering gets upheld in 2018. Maryland and Wisconsin um, both brought up to the court and both are totally cool um, under the court, I guess. Yeah. And we see even challenges in North Carolina. Um, and uh, Kavanaugh was the hard vote needed to say that partisan gerrymandering was always non-justifiable. So there was some like give and take. A lot of the earlier conservative justices were like, like we could leave, like if there's a better argument, we could change leave it this. open. We can we can leave the door open. Yeah. And then Kavanaugh says, partisan gerrymandering was always non-justifiable. Like it's always cool. Yeah. You're always chilling. Yeah. So now, so now, I mean, we've talked about this before. I think we talked about this on the last episode. Like, it's it's just always a dogfight between the parties, yeah. right? They they're off the leash. So every time redistricting cycle comes around, they're just trying to screw each other over as much as possible. Yep. And I mean, there's something to the fact if both of them are trying to screw each other over at the same amount, maybe it evens out at the end. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we see because Democrat states are more likely to pass independent commissions, which means that they aren't gerrymandering to the same level. Okay. Be- you know what I mean? Like California, sure. you could gerrymander the Republicans into oblivion, yeah, but they don't because they have an independent redistricting committee. I see, I see. Now New York doesn't have an independent redistricting committee, so New York could gerrymander the hell out of Republicans and kick them all out. That could happen. We'll see. We'll see. What's next? What do we got? I've got Crawford v. Marion County Election Board. So that's next. There's like Bush v. Gore one. 
gerrymandering too, as far as how this chapter goes. Mm-hmm. Voter ID law. Yeah. That's the next big thing. So Indiana had one of the country's strictest voter ID laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question in this case was whether Indiana's voter ID law violated the equal protection clause. Um, it was very clear at this point that voter ID laws, and it's still clear, they're used for voter suppression. Yeah. Um, specifically of poor younger voters. It's less likely that a young voter will, will have an ID and it costs money to get one. Um, I think in Massachusetts it costs $20 to get a state ID and $100 to get a driver's license mm. when you go to a DMV. Um, so it's obvious how that works. The claims were that voter ID was needed to prevent voter fraud. Mm-hmm. But studies, several studies were done and no evidence ever came up that voter fraud was even a thing at all. Exactly. It's like a, it's like being struck by lightning. Right. Right. Or right. a shark attack. And what we were seeing was 25% of black citizens of voting age lacked current government issue photo ID, mm-hmm. while only 8% of whites did. So this is a classic example of trying to limit minority turnout. And 15% of people who made less than $35,000 lacked a government ID. So you're highly discriminating against the poor. You're highly discriminating against black people. And this wasn't some happy, this wasn't some unfortunate, unhappy accident. Behind the scenes, GOP senators were giddy about the ramifications and were literally and were literally saying that they were excited about the prospect of suppressing minority and college voters. Yeah. They were explicitly caught on recording saying that. Yeah. <laughs> which, which of course, is not surprising to us at all. No, of course not. The fact that something that damning actually came out is, is kind of wild. And that nothing came of it, because we had Crawford v. Marion, and, you know, yeah. what was the final decision? Six to three, the Classic. court decides in favor of the the voter ID law. Um, so, which means even one of the liberal justices hopped onto this. Yeah. Um, and there was a, uh, there's a story about his opinion in thinking, I, I'm forgetting what his rationale was right now. I don't know if you have this noted down at all. It was, it was something about, um, how, how voter ID requirements were like completely, were just acceptable. Like were, were understandable and weren't imposing too much, on um on those voters but but to me and to these other liberal justices right it's it's just another poll tax right it's literally just a poll tax yeah it's a 20 dollars poll tax exactly um so it, it strikes me like that case we were reading about where where um, one of the conservative justices said he's like it was about a guy who was unable to afford the fee to go to bankruptcy you have to pay a fee to get the paperwork to file for bankruptcy yeah and they were saying this is equivalent to like a poll tax because you're you're having to pay for a right and um one of the justices back then said what is it the cost is like paying for a pack of cigarettes it seems that tone deaf yes that's that's what it seems like to me absolutely i agree with that and then the there was worry that it was going to lead to a ton of similar laws in other states. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. Um, and it, I think it listed like 20 other states that adopted similar laws. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, then, and so what is the effects? After 2016, a study of two large Wisconsin counties estimated that 17,000 people were kept from voting. 
Trump only won by 22,748 votes in the state of Wisconsin. 17,000 people were assumed to be kept from voting because of the voter ID laws. Uh, and this obviously negatively impacted poor black people. So I just, th- we're getting to a point where it's just total evisceration of things that we've worked for. Yeah. Or in the progressive era. I think that's one of the most demoralizing things about this book is like, is realizing that the, what feels like the cutting edge of the progressive agenda right now was so casual and within the realm of possibility 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. It's just, it's just. And it's all getting, it feels like it's getting further and further away. Yeah. It seems like it's getting further and further away. Um, and I never really thought about equating equating a voter ID to a poll tax, but that's because of the position I'm in. And reading that metaphor or mm. simile, whatever it is, it just reading reading that comparison just makes me feel like a, how abandoned a certain portion of the country must feel that so many of them don't even understand how difficult it could be to get these things that I just assume are common. Yeah. I mean, 25% of, of, of black voters lacking a current photo government issued ID. Yeah. I can't even imagine that. And the thing is, it's, it's not just the, it's, I mean, it's partially the cost. It's also the convenience factor. Oh yeah. You have to go down to the DMV and you, I mean, at least now I think lines are usually hours mm-hmm. to sit in line for hours, wait to get your ID. It's basically like it's a, an entire afternoon that you're taking up a lot of the time because there aren't DMVs all over the place necessarily. Right. Right. So you're asking people and and there's already quite a lot of reason for people to just decide not to vote. Right. And so to have the money barrier in addition to the time and convenience barrier. That time and convenience barrier is important because that's in the next case because mm. that time and convenience factor is the key. So in 2013, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was challenged. Um, some people like to talk about when America became a liberal democracy. Was it in 1776? Was it in 1865 when the slaves were free? Or was it in 1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act? And I am of the opinion that America did not become a liberal democracy until we passed the Voting Rights Act. We did not become a liberal democracy until that point. Um, and... This is specifically going against the pre-clearance aspect. Yes, which you talked about earlier. Which we talked about that was defended in the Warren Court. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act states, states and localities needed to get pre-clearance from the Justice Department or a federal court before it could be enacted. And Section 4 outlines which part of the country needed this pre-clearance. Every time the act expired, it was reauthorized. So the act expires pretty much, I, I forgot how many years, but every couple years the act expires and it always passes. Always passes unanimously. Mm-hmm. We're talking 98 to 0. Voting Rights Act extension of 2006, with a more hostile court, Congress had made here had many hearings on the impact of the legislation. And 15,000 pages were submitted and showed how minorities have been discriminated against over the years in these areas that require pre-clearance. And then we get to 2013 with Shelby v. Holder. Um, In Shelby County, Alabama, Alabama was suing uh, about the formula that the court was using to decide which part of the countries needed pre-clearance. 
um, and they ruled that this was unconstitutional. And in a 5-4 decision, the court struck down the coverage formula. Um, and they said that this violated the equal sovereignty amongst the states. Robert said specifically that our country had changed and that we did not have the problems of the past and the past solutions were no longer necessary. So a lot of people who study American history say Reconstruction ended too early. And in 1877, American Reconstruction ends and we take troops out of the South after the Civil War and we kind of throw our hands up. This comes after the election crisis of 1877, and there's a whole compromise where uh, President Hayes says, okay, Democrats, we know you don't think I actually won, but if you sign on and say I won, Reconstruction ends and we pull all the troops out. And so the Democrats in the South are like, okay, man, that's cool. You be president, but Reconstruction's over now, right? And he's like, yep. So all the troops leave and Reconstruction ends, and that's when the real rise of the KKK comes into being and all the black people who got elected get thrown out. Yeah, yeah, that's the history of Reconstruction for you. And so people say Reconstruction ends there. This is just spitting on the grave of Reconstruction mm. to say that our country had changed and that the problems and we do not have the problems of the past. Despite 15,000 pages of evidence in support of the voting rights act and a, and a unanimous passage in congress in congress an almost unanimous passage yeah yeah ah uh, and it's and this isn't true and there's no good examples that he cites and one of the most blatant there's a good documentary on this on youtube i forgot what it is but just look up this event and you'll find it in 2001 mississippi officials actually canceled an election because it looks like the blacks of a town were going to get power. They just canceled the election. Yeah. Just canceled it. Mm -hmm. um, the Justice Department ended up getting involved, forced him to hold the election, and the town got its first mayor. So don't tell me... First black mayor. First black mayor. Yeah. So don't tell me, John Roberts, that <laughs> the problems of the past are no longer with us. No. You know, like, just bite me. Um. And uh, what's so funny about this is Roberts admits that he was striking down an act of Congress and he acknowledges that this was like the hardest thing for the court to do. This was its most humbling power yeah. to strike down a law that Congress passed. Um, and he was the guy who was nominated saying, I'm going to call balls and stripes. I'm not a legislator, you know, yeah, and this is him way. just explicitly saying, no, you know what? I actually don't give a shit what you pass how you vote what the people want it's not important racism's over baby i said so <laughs> all hail god john roberts all hair all hail god john roberts and so then this gets into the convenience thing you were talking about yeah literally right after this was done alabama brought back old voter id laws that were struck down by preclearance and closed offices that were used to get ids mostly in black areas yeah yeah. And this is, there was evidence like all across the country that uh, voter ID laws were discriminating against minorities, specifically in terms of the the offices that were available and like there being fewer uh, offices where you could get an ID to vote in uh, majority black areas. Yep. Plus there being fewer polling locations in majority black areas. Mm-hmm. 
Um, right, right. Since this decision, yeah. there's been 1,000 less polling locations in the South. Mm-hmm. Racism's not a problem anymore, guys. John no. Roberts said so. <laughs> uh, just, uh, Jesus Christ. The guys who ended racism, uh, Abraham Lincoln and John Roberts. I don't know. Yeah. It just blows my mind. Apparently. So the last thing we're going to talk about is voter roll purges. Yeah. And um, this one is a little more... This one, this one's, this one's a little more contemporary with um, the decision. We're talking in 2018 now. We're at. Um, he talks about some of the history of voter purges. How before the 2000 election, um, the Florida government um, wrongfully stopped 4,752 black voters um, from voting. Um, yeah. And again, that's enough to change the election. In Bush v. Gore. In yeah. Bush v. Gore, that's enough to change it. Um, and we come to a position where in Ohio, they come up with a way to purge someone off the registered voter rolls by saying of voters who had not voted in two years, who had missed just one federal election. So this is the whole thing. It's kind of complicated, but I'm just going to go through it here so people understand. The Ohio rule is this. Voters who had not voted in two years, who had missed one federal election, received mail notices from the Board of Elections. If they did not respond and to that notice and then did not vote in the next four years or have any other interactions with the election system, they were purged. So Larry Harmon, who was a Navy veteran who did not vote for a while, tried to vote in 2015, but turned out he was purged out. Um, the 6th U.S. Court of Appeals ruled in favor of Harmon um, and explicitly said, that this broke the the Voting Rights Act. But in 2018, it got to the Supreme Court, and the court ruled in 5-4 that this provision did not break the Voting Rights Act, um, and now it makes it easier to purge people from voting rolls. Mm -hmm. um, the contemporary um, aspect to this was in 2012 to 2016, Brian Kemp was the Secretary of State of Georgia, um, and he purged around 1.5 million voters between this time and 665,000 in 2017. Brian Kemp, um, 100,000 of these people were removed for not voting. He then ran for governor in 2018 against Stacey Abrams, um, and he won the gubernatorial election by 55,000 votes. So who knows how many of those people who was purged under his reign as Secretary of State could have voted, if not... Nuts. Nuts, right? Nuts. It... Uh, yeah, it, this is like the, the manipulation of the system is one of the most frustrating things to me because there's already like, there's already so much, like it already falls so short, even without this work being done against it. Yeah. That it, I mean, it's just like we said before, it's, it's taking us, it's moving us further away from where we need to be to be to just be a normal democracy right oh, then it, it, it makes me feel like america has long been i mean maybe the 1965 voting rights act wasn't enough to make us a liberal democracy maybe we've never crossed that threshold yet mm. i mean it's honestly possible. i don't think i don't think a liberal democracy truly exists until you have proportional representation in my eyes mm. i don't see liberal democracy as existing until you reach that point do you think the way to do it for this is just spitballing for proportional representation, right? 
to get rid of the problem of something like gerrymandering, and obviously you, you still need to fix everything like making, like getting rid of voter roll purges, like stopping vote suppression by giving enough ballot um, counting places. Is it to give, to have a popular vote by state and give a number of Democratic or Republican Congress people? Two things. I, I, it needs to be a mixed member parliamentary system, the same system that operates in New Zealand currently. Mm. That is the best way to proportion people. You get local representatives, and then there are basically national popular votes for parties. Okay. And then that national popular vote, popular vote for parties makes sure everything's proportional. But you still have a local regional representative. Okay. Okay. So it's like there would still be representation like the house works right now yeah. plus another group exactly that makes sense and that's the way to go about it man that's the best way to do it yeah. you know america's so far away from that that that's not how america will ever get proportional representation no no america would need to rewrite its constitution so the way that we get proportional representation is fighting for anti-gerrymandering laws fighting for independent state redistricting committees mm -hmm. that's how we get in america that's how you get proportional representation. and stopping voter suppression and stopping voter suppression yeah right that's how you get proportional representation in america not the other way even though the other way is better just not practical mm. um so these two chapters we've read between campaign finance reform last week all this stuff about democracy and the right to vote this week since the 1940s <laughs> The real income of the middle class families rose more than twice as... Oh, no, 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 no. Actually, that's a whole other thing. Don't okay. even worry about that. <laughs> Don't worry about that. But the combination of the campaign finance stuff, the campaign finance changes, and the changes to voting rights, it's just a decimation of our democracy in totality. Mm. And these two things working in tandem really makes a nasty new reality that American politics is now in, where people are vying for the, for the money of the wealthy... And not really worrying about the votes for the poor because they don't vote anyway. You know? Mm. And it, it makes it... It's just sad to see. Yeah. Next week, we will be continuing with this, you know, trudge of terrible... <laughs> yeah, we'll trudge through... Events. Um, cases. I don't know what the... I don't have the book on me either. Whatever. Stay tuned. Tune in. Yeah, tune you'll, in. You'll see. All right, guys. Deep now, diving. Now we're deep diving on some... <laughs> Awesome, crazy <laughs> shit. We're going to be talking about the war in Afghanistan, how we were lied to, what was going on. And really, I want to really focus, uh, besides just the generalities of the war in Afghanistan, I want to talk about a book that was written um, by the Washington Post based off of a long, extensive story. Um, and it's called The Afghanistan Papers, um, uh, The War That We Were Lied Into. And it was, it's just if you have a subscription to the Washington Post, which I bet you don't, um, but go to the Washington Post and l read as much as you can of the Afghanistan papers because it's just, it's crazy to it see. It is wild. It's wild. The yeah. story is wild. Mm -hmm. So where do you want to start? Do you want to start with how we got into Afghanistan? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Okay. So let's start with 1999. We'll start there. Okay. okay. So sure. 1999, the UN Security Council adopts the resolution 1267 and it creates the so-called al-qaeda and taliban sanctions committee and this is the first time these two groups are getting linked together mm -hmm. 
we, from an international perspective, uh, the Al Qaeda and the Taliban are now linked and are grouped as terrorist entities mm -hmm. and impose sanctions on their funding, travel, and their arms shipments. Now, the Taliban, the reason this was happening was the Taliban was giving Al Qaeda um, sanctuary to operate. And since the Afghanistan government was giving Al Qaeda this operational capacity, the UN saw fit to classify them just as bad as the terrorists themselves. Mm -hmm. I think I agree with that so far. I think that's fair. Sure. Yeah. If you're going to harbor international terrorists, you should be classified as such too. Yeah, I'll agree with that as well. Right? I think yeah. that's fine. I think so far we're not in the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. In September 2001, um, before September 11th, uh, the Northern Alliance, which is the anti-Taliban coalition, the Taliban's strongest regions are in the southwest. If you pull up a map of Afghanistan, I want you to look at the, um, the province of, um, oh man, it starts with an H. I should know this though. I'm going to pull it up. The provinces. I don't know. That's okay. You. But I, I need to pull it up because I should pull it up. Let me just see. I, I want it starts in H and it's oh, important. Oh, Helmand? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Helmand? yeah, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Helmand. Okay, Helmand, Helmand. whatever. Okay. However you pronounce it. That's the most important one. That one is like the Taliban stronghold down there. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the Taliban hard... Kandahar, that region, that southwest region, that is where the Taliban is the most strong. Mm. So um, with that, the Northern Alliance is centered around the top. And these are anti-Taliban coalitions, and their commander is Ahmad Sa Masoud. He is the lion of the Panjshir. Uh, he was assassinated in early September. Mm -hmm. So the leader of the Northern Alliance is gone. Mm -hmm. And terrorism experts actually believe that his assassination assured bin Laden, bin Laden the protection by the Taliban after the 9-11 attacks. Because yeah. now the Taliban didn't have to really deal with this co-fight between the Northern Alliance and Al-Qaeda. Yes, they didn't have to worry about internal right. strife. Yeah. So now they're just like, okay, bin Laden, you're our guy. You won this out, I guess. Mm -hmm. September 11th, uh, we all know what happens. America is attacked. What's notable is that none of the people on the flight were Afghanistan nationals, right? Mm -hmm. They were Al-Qaeda members, mostly from Saudi Arabia. The leader was from Egypt. Yeah. But none of them were Afghan nationals. Um, and Bush says something pretty intense. He says, you need to deliver to the United States authorities all the leaders of Al-Qaeda who hide in your land or share in their fate. Yeah. Now, how do you intense. feel about that? Because I'm trying to, I, I want to under, I want to see where the line gets crossed where I don't agree anymore. Yeah, this is okay. Well, I'm thinking one on precedent, right? Um, Pearl Harbor mm -hmm. gets us into World War II. Um, does this? It seems like an attack that is worthy of a response, a military response. Totally. What's hard is. I mean, and honestly, the Taliban is connected to Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. The Taliban runs Afghanistan. Seems to make sense to go to war with Afghanistan, mm -hmm. which is run by the people who organized this attack. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So far, That's where I'm, I'm at. So far, I'm cool with it. I think we'll get into this, but I think there's a way to reincorporate the Taliban in a better way. I, I don't know if I, we'll get to this, but I don't know if equating the Taliban and Al Qaeda 
on the punishment level with sure. this military is the same way because I think you can you can whip the Taliban into better behavior. I think that might be fair. The question is how. Right. And the question is how. So then September 18th, we have a joint resolution to attack those who attacked us on 9-11, which mm-hmm. Bush used to do a bunch of things, the Patriot Act, all this other stuff. All these other things come down into the joint resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, October 7th, the bombing begins. We have, we have American and British forces bombing Afghanistan. Now, what's important to remember is this was kind of a bilateral team with the United States and the British in the beginning. Yes. Um, it goes into a more multinational approach later on. Iraq never becomes multinational. It really is just the United States and Britain going at it mm-hmm. um, against Iraq. But in Afghanistan, it becomes multinational. I'm going to correct you right now to Iraq, just so we don't get the comments. What did I say? Iraq. Oh, Iraq? Yeah. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, so many people were so mean to me yeah. about how I pronounced like, Iran. Like, learn how to pronounce Iran, idiot. I know. I'm like, dude, come on, man. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Give me a break. Yeah. Um, so the airstrikes are going down. And the Northern Alliance is and ethnic uh, Pashtun anti-Taliban forces in combination with special forces are all going at it. So mm-hmm. America actually curated a fairly good internal Afghanistan alliance between the Northern Alliance, the um, the ethnic Pashtun people who are against the Taliban. Seems like they're actually able to get a good multilateral position on the world stage to say look there are these other aspects of afghanistan that are with us Mm -hmm. we're going to use these people who want a better form of government we're going to give it to them yes so far this makes sense yep 12 days later 12 days later america sends in the ground forces i'm still cool with it america's got to take this stuff down um and in november the taliban unravels very very quickly very quickly at the battle of uh mazar as shaif november 9th 2001 uh, leaders, um, and this leads to a Taliban rout. Allied forces lo- loyal to Abdul Rashid Dastum, an ethnic Uzbek military leader, led the assault. Um, I just think it's cool to note the people who are behind attacks like that and mm. cool battles. So November 14th, the UN Security Council passes Resolution 1378, calling for a central role for the United Nations establishing a transitional administration. This is amazing. The United Nations is making an active step to saying, okay, this country has fallen apart. This country was a harbor of terrorism. We are now going to build out a transitional plan to get you on the path to participate in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what has to be done. The fact that this isn't like America totally giving its whole hand and smashing it down on the country, this is the way to go about it. Yes. Right? Um, December, Bin Laden escapes. And this is when everything goes to hell. Yes. Because Bin Laden escaping should have been unacceptable. The fact that Bin Laden was able to get out shows a very, very fatal flaw in the American capacity to wage war in this country. Mm. We are now at December. We came in in September, right? So we are have been there for three months. Um, the Taliban has routed, but still... Bin Laden is able to escape. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that's happening means that whatever control we're able to create isn't true control. Yeah. And if there's ever a time to double down on the Afghanistan war, it's right now. It's right now when we realize that we don't have the place locked down. Mm. Bin Laden got out. And, and But we don't because the Taliban's been routed. 
Right. Right. We feel like it's ex- it's exactly the opposite. It's our time to take our foot off the gas. Right. And we have an interim government getting established. Mm-hmm. An interim government is getting established. Um, a conference in Bonn, Germany. Uh, parties were invited to discuss power. This is another fatal flaw. Taliban was not invited to this conversation. The Taliban was actively excluded from this. Yes. Like it or not, there is a large portion of Afghanistan that is loyal to the Taliban. Yep. If you don't put the Taliban in this power-sharing agreement in this new government... You're just asking for more conflict. You're asking asking for for more more trouble. You're asking for more trouble. This is a failure on the political level, not the military level. Bin Laden escaping is a failure on the military level. Mm -hmm. This aspect of not including the Taliban was a failure on the political level. And I I blame American leaders. Yeah. Um, But what do I blame them for? I blame them for listening to the members of the Northern Alliance. Because the Northern Alliance members convinced the United States that Afghanistan was more anti-Taliban than it was. Okay. The, the Northern Alliance convinced American ambassadors, Amer- American yeah, directors. And, and that, American yeah. leadership wanted to believe it. Right. Because they course. had bigger fish to fry. Yeah. They wanted to move on. And then that's when this really goes into hell here. And now, it, again, we're going to see American military successes, which is good still. We have Operation Anaconda in March of twenty-two, uh, March of two thousand, uh, March of two thousand two. Um, this is the first major ground assault. Um, mm-hmm. They targeted eight eight hundred Al Qaeda and Taliban fighters. But notice how it's eight hundred Al Qaeda and Taliban fighters. The ranks are getting mixed here, and I think the ranks are getting mixed is because Taliban aren't in, the Taliban aren't included. If the Taliban had an incentive to see the new interim government survive, they might not have been fighting with Al Qaeda at all. Sure. They might have just said, okay, yeah. Yeah. It's hard because, of course, U.S. leadership has an incentive to completely exclude Taliban leadership from the new government. Right. And they would have had to, they really would have had to kind of thread a needle on giving the Taliban enough power to leave them happy, but hopefully not so much that they would completely take over the government again. Right. And they learn, but we've learned this lesson at this point because we've learned this lesson from Japan. We nuked Japan twice. We beat Japan in a war, but we didn't throw away their government system. We didn't kill the emperor. Instead, we had pictures of MacArthur and Emperor Hirohito in the same room standing next to each other smiling. Mm. And now Japan is our closest ally. And they were immediately after this, World War II. They became our closest ally because we were able to rope them into our system. Mm. And America didn't take their good example and apply it yeah with the taliban what do you think it was do you think it was honestly like like emotional leadership by bush like oh my god you attacked us that was so horrible i'm not okay with standing in a room and smiling with you i don't want to totally blame bush i think there was some fault on the american public too that Mm. just wanted to see the blood yeah and wanted to see the total change which i don't blame them that does make sense i don't blame them right and i i can already picture aspects of God forbid there's another terrorist attack a year later. Yeah. And may- Bush decided to include the Taliban, you know, like in the in the power sharing agreement and the new government system. I understand the political hurdles to that. Yeah, it also makes sense. I'm thinking again, like World War II, right? Pearl Harbor was bombed, which was a military base. Mm-hmm. It was not a civilian hub. I yeah. think that's extremely different with with um what happened on 9-11. Yeah. Plus 
the shaking hands with Hirohito happened two years after. And this timeline seems right. much more condensed. That's actually really fair, right? It's yeah. super fair because this is way more. This is way more recent. Yeah, we can't have pictures with the Taliban six months after they just harbored the people who destroyed our two of our greatest uh, attacked our greatest city. Sure. Um, yeah, that's right. New York is our greatest city. Um, but now, at, at this point, March two thousand two. Operation Anaconda is successful, and then this is where America makes the largest mistake, and I believe the most gross misuse of American trust. Um, the United States pivots to Iraq. And with this pivot, America declares victory. And the declaration of victory is too soon. It's, it's uh, overzealous. And we move on to a different policy of reconstructing Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And at first, we get some pretty good things coming out of the uh, of our leadership. Uh, Bush says, by helping to build an Afghanistan that is free from this evil and is a better place uh, in which to live, we are working in the best traditions of George Marshall. Now, George Marshall um, designed the Marshall Plan, which rebuilt Western Europe from the ashes of World War II. And the U.S. Congress has appropriated $38 billion um, in reconstruction aid to assist Afghanistan from 2001-2009. And these are all great things. The transitional, the transitional government gets named. We establish a new reconstruction model that is including NATO. Um, we are giving command of individual PRTs. These PRTs are provincial reconstruction teams. We're giving them over to NATO states. So like the NATO community is involved in rebuilding Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Again, this is international. This isn't American. This isn't America going at it unilaterally. Because we we also wanted to not be seen as nation builders. Like right. we didn't want the imperialist label and that stigma. Mm -hmm. So if we instead give it to the international community, we can kind of rid our hands of it. Right. Right. Now, this approach gets kind of ridiculed. The uh, uh, U.S. Institute of Peace called it an ad hoc approach. Um, I don't think it's that bad. I do understand how lacking some type of central authority between the PRTs can be a little difficult. I understand that. Mm. Um, but I don't, think it's, I don't think it's the worst thing. Okay. This is where I, I feel like I'm uh, – it's hard for me to speak on this because I don't know what good yeah, what is good building look like? in a place that you've just – kind of decimated what does that look like yeah i don't know what that looks like either i mean i have no clue right i'm just yeah i'm just using my guessing uh, game yeah. i'm like you know I, I like to think that local control of these regions and including the local community as much as possible in their own security would make them more anti-taliban by making them feel that their security is their own priority yes and you know what i mean Definitely. So, but yeah. by May 2003, he says, Bush says major combat is over. And there's mm -hmm. 8,000 troops in Afghanistan by this point. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole rest of this. No. But the main thing that we, I wanted to give you the lead up of the war, how it basically gets to this point. And then we're there for another 10 years, or another 20 years, about. Obama recommits hardcore. They develop a so-called new strategy changes of command happen trump comes in we drop the largest bomb ever created that is a nuclear bomb on them it's still not over and then eventually biden gets out um becomes a train wreck yep. plummets his approval and now we're here where taliban is there in control and 
we've gained nothing. No. no. And so that's where... We completely lost the war. I mean, completely lost the war. I think that's... No. That's where we were at now. If we look at this timeline again, I think we could have won the war in March of 2002. After the success of Operation Anaconda and we start restructuring Afghanistan, at this moment, if America doesn't go into Iraq and America makes the decision to double down in Afghanistan and secure the Pakistani border, to Afghanistan because a lot of the Taliban, I'm sorry, a lot of the Al-Qaeda fighters yep. and the Taliban fighters escaped to Pakistan. Pakistan, mm -hmm. And they would continue to cross that border right. to assist in the fighting. And the Afghanistan president even said at specific points, he's like, we need more troops on this because you're, they're coming in through this border. Mm -hmm. And this is very similar to what was going on in the Vietnam War with um, Vietnamese soldiers coming in through Laos and Cambodia into the South Vietnam. Um, you know, we're not saying you want to bomb Pakistan. That's not the thing. We shouldn't be bombing Pakistan. Mm -hmm. But we should have more operational capacity on the border of Afghanistan. But America isn't committing troops. Why aren't they committing troops? Because they're in Iraq. And so this brings us to a good anecdote here where... Um, during a meeting with President Bush, Donald Rumsfeld goes up to him and he's like, hey, uh, Bushy, my boy, uh, two of our generals are here um, and you should probably catch up with them while they're around. And he goes, oh, which two? Um, he says, Tommy Franks, um, he's going to be in town. This is three months or six months before the war in Iraq starts. So Tommy Frank is going to be in town and he's in charge of planning for the war in Iraq. And Bush is like, okay, cool. That, I'll definitely meet with him. And then Donald Rumsfeld goes, okay, Dan McNeil is also going to be around. Bush is like, uh, who, who's Dan McNeil? And Donald Rumsfeld responds, Dan McNeil is our current war commander in Afghanistan. And Bush is like, oh, I don't, I don't need to meet with him. Yeah. Afghanistan wasn't even on his mind anymore. Yeah, I, Afghanistan was a completely secondary effort. I think the, the what, what I read was the, the split was like, 85 15 maybe 90 10 yeah attention to iraq versus afghanistan and it's just a waste it's, iraq was a waste if afghanistan was a waste iraq was a waste yeah you know what i mean totally totally and so here we are we're at the we're, we're at the end, end here we've gotten out mm -hmm. uh joe biden has pulled out we have spent 2.1 trillion dollars trying to build up afghanistan 2.1 trillion dollars um, to put that in perspective, that could have ended American homelessness. It could have gotten every American free college, and it could have started a single payer healthcare system. Mm. All of those things could have been paid for, but instead, we spent two trillion dollars killing um, countless people and losing countless lives yeah. to eventually including get nothing for it, we including civilians. So many civilians. So many civilians. So many. And that made it hard to fight the Taliban too. That made it so hard to fight the we Taliban. We just continued to radicalize people. Right. Because we, we used such a blunt tool in trying to fix this problem. We were talking, there's a good quote um, somewhere in here where a general was explaining how we're having tactical victories, sure, but we're losing, we have so many strategic failures because for every one Afghan civilian we kill, we create five more Taliban Al-Qaeda aligned fighters. Yeah. There's no way to win a war like that. Mm-hmm. And so now this was, and then this one gets nation building, gets so difficult. 
What is the role of the military here? And this is, again, we haven't even gotten into the Afghanistan papers yet. This is all just Afghanistan background knowledge. Mm. What's so hard about the war in Afghanistan and that process of rebuilding a country is we take 18, 19, 20-year-old boys, we show them how to shoot a gun, we teach them how to kill, and then we send them to these towns in Afghanistan and we ask them to be social workers. We ask them to teach people how to start agricultural communities. We ask them to teach people how to start running town halls and town meetings. We ask them to be patient. Mm-hmm. These are 18, 19-year-old boys. I wasn't patient when I was 19. I wasn't patient when I was 20. This shouldn't be their responsibility at all. You're yeah. setting these kids up for failure. Totally. And you're putting them in situations where they're a danger to the civilians. These children, and you're 18, you're 19, you're 20, you're basically a child, giving them a gun and you're giving them authority to create a new town and run these people's lives and they're not going to be good tempered no so you're asking for you're asking for war crimes yeah you're absolutely asking for war crimes and the type of oversight was not sufficient to ensure that well behavior was going on yeah and i don't want to put all the blame on the soldiers uh, the american soldiers in afghanistan because god knows that their job is the most difficult one but yeah, well, I think this is where, I mean, I will reference the papers and that there, um, there were interviews where people specifically cited the overappreciation of military, the underappreciation of diplomacy yeah. and development. Development. Yeah, and where that that is reflected in trying to force more of these jobs onto the military. But also it comes in, it's it's kind of a budgetary problem as well, where the the sentiment with military budget is just like that's what we need to do mm-hmm. like whatever we need there set aside because we we need to hold it militarily so keep giving that money yeah but on the other hand there was super specific scrutiny on these development projects mm-hmm. um and it was constantly like like why isn't this going well? But there was there was scrutiny on the development projects, but there wasn't scrutiny on the reasoning behind the development projects. Right. Um, so they were, even though they were building up this infrastructure, it wasn't necessarily helping anything. And there's a perfect example here of um, like erecting some some auditorium based building or some kind of infrastructure. It says that. One pointed example of this disconnect is a ribbon cutting ceremony complete with a giant scissors for a district police chief in some godforsaken province. And I'm quoting here. <laughs> it was a USACE completed building with a glass facade and an atrium. The police chief couldn't even open the door. He had never seen a doorknob like this. To me, this encapsulates the whole experience in Afghanistan. Wow. It's like we just went there and then we stayed to nation build because we were trying to present an image of ourselves as a country that wanted to make it better, but we weren't doing the actual important work. No, we weren't. And so I want to get at where these papers are coming from here. So this or this organization of these papers, it comes from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. And their job, um, Saigar, known for short, and I'll say it as Saigar from this point forward, they uh, were created in 2008, and they were trying to investigate waste and fraud 
going on in the war zone of Afghanistan. That was their job. Sounds good. Sounds like a, exactly what we needed, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they 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 produced um, a, a project titled Lessons Learned. And they were going through what was found, uh, all the faults of our projects in Afghanistan. Now, what's important to think about here is in 2014, America thought the war was about to end. Obama thought that the war was going to be over by 2014. And so when Saigar is writing Lessons Learned, they really feel like they're writing the last paragraph in the book, mm-hmm. right? They're writing the conclusion here. Yep. Um, but they're not. And in this Lessons Learned document, there aren't many interviews cited. Now, this confused reporters at the Washington Post who found out that Saigar has actually done a lot of interviews to, with all the top people involved with the rebuilding and the war in Afghanistan. And why weren't these interviews included it's because the interviews were so damning and showed so much of the absolute mishandling of public funds of public trust they it shows all the lies that we were told throughout the war and it's really a disgusting history of just how little power the american people truly have yeah over our foreign policy mm-hmm. And a good example of this is American generals explicitly and consistently said that we never had a strategy. Not that they didn't have a bad strategy, not that they had a strategy that they didn't agree with, but that they actually had no strategy. And they were basically let off the leash and said, go fix the problem, go kill the Taliban. Mm -hmm. Okay. That sounds ridiculous, right? That's extrapolation. That's hyperbole. That's whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Probably lying, right? Just hyperbole. Saigar also interviewed a British general. No incentive to lie on the American government's behalf. The British government also said that they had no strategy involved, only tactics. Tactics can't win wars. If you don't have a strategic vision for the war, you can't win. Mm -hmm. And we have generals from two different countries firmly admitting that their nation gave them no strategy for success, no definition of success, no strategy for victory just told them to get the job done and let them be. And that right there is just asking for failure. Yeah. Well, because I think, I think American leadership didn't actually know what it wanted. Yeah. Especially as, as soon as bin Laden escaped the country, right? Then it was like, I mean, first of all, even when they initially went into Afghanistan, they didn't get a specific directive of like fighting the Taliban until nine days later. Right. So they're getting this information on what the ends are supposed to be further and further. And meanwhile, they also talk about this this stark disconnect between means and resources. So means are like the methods that they're supposed to go through to achieve whatever goals they have. And then resources are what resources they have. Mm-hmm. And they there was specific... There was disconnects in communication because the people who understood the the, the resources um, were completely different than the people who were creating methods or whatever the strategy, the low-level strategy was supposed to be. Because strategy is essentially completely left up to the military. Right. Policymakers don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
because of that disconnect, like they didn't understand. I mean, that disconnect, but also the larger disconnect of not knowing the overarching end goal. They didn't know exactly what methods to implement and what resources should be allocated towards it. Right. So that's where all of this waste comes in, of course. Right. And it's also like one of those situations where Bush didn't commit enough. And then Obama, especially with the money. So with the money thing, Bush didn't commit enough. And he didn't commit enough money in the right areas at the right times to produce good results. Obama committed too much money in too many bad things mm. at the wrong time. And corruption chases money, not the other way around. Yes. And the corruption that went on in these Afghanistan projects were just immense. And we're talking about brothers giving money to brothers. There's examples of one brother building in the business of building bridges, and then another brother that would destroy the bridges so that America would get more money. That they, So then the other brother would get more money for America to fix the bridge, and the other brother would destroy the bridge over and over and over again. This bridge got built like six times. Wow. And then there was another example of of a uh, of a of a of a mayor of a town in Afghanistan, and then his brother was involved in some corruption scheme. And the Afghanistan, uh, not the Afghanistan, the American consulate goes up to them, and they're like, "Look, you got to get your brother in check." And he's like, "Stop giving my brother money. Like, don't tell me what to do with my brother. You stop giving my brother money, yeah, and then maybe we'll have less of a problem." But that's what's happening. It's all getting funneled everywhere, yeah, and then you lose track of it. And you're not actually seeing the results of it. And the results of it are what I, what I want to talk about for a second. Because at this point, how are we defining success? Well, <laughs> how are we defining success? Mm -hmm. The only way that we can define success in a situation like this is through data points and tables and charts and graphs to make the American people feel comfortable that we have things under control, right? Mm -hmm. Bob Crowley was an army colonel, and he served as the senior counterinsurgency advisor to the United States commanders between 2013-2014. He said that every data point was altered to present the best picture possible. Surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable, but reinforced that everything we were doing was right, and we became a self-licking ice cream cone. Mm -hmm. And that, perfect, because we're, we're, we're curating the results that we want to show to the public. Yeah, we're just spouting power propaganda just spouting propaganda just making making stuff up mm -hmm. and especially when you're this this comes out of the war in vietnam um th this type of dynamic but a unit goes out into the in, into the vicinity of vietnam uh, of vietnam they run into an ambush three of their guys die they only think they killed one but maybe they didn't even hit him but they can't go back to the base and say they didn't kill any so they say oh we got one guy we lost three mm. Then the sergeant's like, or whatever, the colonel's like, oh my God, I can't go back to my general and say that I lost three for one. It's got to at least be more Americans, uh, less Americans die than Vietnamese. Okay, so we killed four. We They got three. Then mm. the general goes to the president. The president says, oh my God, well, we can't say that we're only doing that. It's got to be more than that. So then they change the number again. Wow. And that happens consistently throughout the war in Vietnam mm. and happens the same time in Afghanistan. The same dynamic is going on. Mm. The same exact dynamic is going on. Do you think, sorry, yeah, where was, you go. Do you think there's a difference between like these wars, which are kind of not, I mean, Vietnam proxy war, but I'm trying to think like kind of more nation building wars. Is there a difference with how those are reported on versus totally 
Do you think so? Yeah, there's different like types of wars. I mean, I think the war, war in, I think the war in Ukraine is very different from the war in Afghanistan. Sure. The way you Ukraine is reported, I think, is very different. Do you agree? Well, I don't even mean reported to the public. Oh, what do you mean? I mean, I oh, mean this recorded. chain of command. Like, like yes, a war of counterinsurgency is very difficult. Di- very different from a war with front lines. They're run very differently. Do you think they're not like? Do you think they're being more honest about? Do you? I'm I'm thinking that the expectations of every level going down are are more. Hmm, I think there are higher expectations of the, what the power of U.S. forces are supposed to be doing in, in Afghanistan it's exactly or right. Vietnam. It's exactly right. Yeah, it's exactly right because we're supposed to be so superior to the Vietnamese. We're supposed to be so superior to the to the, the people in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing. We're killing ourselves with our own arrogance. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Perfect. We're killing ourselves with our own arrogance. So these types of lies um, were extremely common being told to the public. Um, uh, another, another, another U.S. military personnel said, if the American people knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, 2,400 lives lost, everyone would say that this war was in vain. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are just blatant expressions of emotion from the highest levels of our military. Um, And what's crazier even more, the U.S. government didn't even carry out a comprehensive counting of how much was spent in Afghanistan. So I say it's $2.1 trillion, but who actually knows? It's a total estimate. Right, that's a total estimate. That's a guesstimate, less than an estimate. We have no clue. No. We have absolutely no clue. Because that's that's the problem with, with something like the bridge gets destroyed and it keeps getting rebuilt, right? It's, we feel like we have to have the bridge built mm-hmm. so no matter how many times it's destroyed we keep putting the money back in to get it built yeah and i feel like that's kind of the whole struggle here with as as taliban aligned forces keep fighting they they don't go down right we have to keep pouring money into reconstruction and part of it too is trying to train um the a non-Taliban aligned army in no. Afghanistan so we can get out. And that's, that just fails. That like, just fails completely on its face. We are totally unable to train up a military force capable of beating the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no morale to fight at the end of the day. You, you can't defend the people who don't want to be defended. Exactly. Um, Cause they don't actually have a problem with a lot of it. Uh, yeah. You go to the center of Kabul. Sure. I think there are a lot of people who will go in and say that they want to defeat the Taliban in Kabul, in Kabul proper. Um, I think actually the constitution of Afghanistan was actually pretty great. They had measures to make sure that women were represented in government in a way that America doesn't even do. Mm. They said a specific number of their senators have to be women. They said a specific number of their people in their legislature have to be women. Mm. That's great. That's better than what America does right now. So there were great steps going on in there. But like we're talking about the cost of reconstruction of Afghanistan. We spent more money to build up Afghanistan than we did in inflation-adjusted dollars than the whole of Western Europe after World War II. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, but we know why that is. There was no counterinsurgency in Western Europe. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Fighting a war of counterinsurgency is just fundamentally different, and America didn't know how to do it. And we still don't. And now here's why. Why don't we? So this is my thing. This is what pisses me off. We did this already in Vietnam. We already mm-hmm. did this. Exactly. Weren't we supposed to learn from these mistakes? No, we, we didn't. Because nobody was fired. Nobody was held accountable. Mm. And the documents didn't change. They're arrogance. Arrogance. Yeah. People 
I believe at the top levels of the military, we, we haven't, we've fired two generals in the last 60 years. The first one was during the Korean War. The really? second one we'll talk about in a second. Okay. Second one happens recently. The people don't like to get, um, to admit that they don't know what they're doing. And to hold someone at the highest levels of our government accountable shows that the government can get things wrong mm-hmm. and shows that we're not perfect up here at, with our four stars. Especially if it's not at the very highest, that means it's the president right. admitting that he's gotten something wrong. Right. But a general, a guy who's went to West Point, who's fought in wars, who's done all this stuff, gets to the top level of the military, um, and he does bad things, messes up, kills civilians, makes wrong calls, is failure at nation building, cannot control the uh, Afghanistan counterinsurgents. What do you do with a guy like that? Um, you hold him on, you hold on to him, you make sure he keeps doing his press conferences, and you tell him to say that he's making progress. If you look at the distribution of the amount of times generals uttered the word progress, the generals to the public, generals said the word progress more often when the war in Afghanistan was going worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah, that makes all the sense. It makes all the sense in the world, right? So what happens to the guys who do tell the truth? There was General McKiernan uh, between 2009 and 2010 or 2008 to 2009. He was only general for about a year, um, leading the war in Afghanistan. He was only there for about a year. Why was he only there for a year? This was the only general since the Korean War to get fired from his post. Wow. Because he told the truth? Because he told the truth. He said that we were... Um, losing. He said that we needed more men. He said that we were in trouble. He said that things are going to get better before they get worse. And he was fired and he was replaced. And asked why he was replaced, everyone said, no, he didn't do anything wrong. Didn't do anything wrong. Just, you know, we want to try something new. Um, But uh, The Guardian had a really good post, a really good article titled The Curious Sacking of General McKiernan. Um, after it happened, and uh, I definitely think it's something that you should go look into more in detail because mm. I'm not an expert on it. But yeah, he got fired for telling the truth. Interesting. And it creates this cycle of nobody wants to be truthful anymore because the truth tellers get punished. Yep. And we lead to just yeah, which is which is like the whole point of. Uh, a democracy that's founded upon freedom of speech is is that you you avoid these problems that usually come out of an autocracy yeah right that you're just exactly. focused only on controlling the information and the narrative so that you constantly project strength even when it's not there and but when it comes to this particular part of our executive branch that has hmm, that's already so kind of anchored or like it's they're they're so hard to unseat Mm -hmm. it almost is run like an autocracy right because they're they do have such power in the military and it is only in their interests to keep projecting this image exactly exactly and and then, look, the last thing I want to touch on, and I don't have a lot of information about this because I didn't have the time to read into it more, but I wish I did, was the role that opium played. Well, this I know is it was 
it funded the entire Taliban Al Qaeda war effort. Like it, it is it is the only major source of funding they had was selling their opium to Bes- international markets. Besides, besides direct financial support, which they I think they got some of from Russia. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but but opium was the main. And then America was going at, and then America was fighting a drug war across the world. They couldn't even win the drug war at home, but we're going to go fight a drug war in Afghanistan trying to get this opium. I mean, it was just a whole mess of shit. And it's, it just could have gone differently if America didn't enter Iraq and didn't invade Iraq and could have focused totally on Afghanistan and put troops on the Pakistani border. It could have gone different, mm-hmm. include Taliban at the conference, uh, at the Bonn conference in Germany. Things could have absolutely gone different. Yeah. Um, but instead the Taliban is currently in power in Afghanistan again. America has gained nothing. Yeah, but in addition to those moves, like they, they still they still needed more accountability internally. Like they still needed to acknowledge failure where yeah. there was failure, be able to adjust to that, right? Like be truthful internally and externally like there needs to be more transparency yeah at the end of the day there just needs to be more transparency um we can't be fighting wars with the american people not knowing what's going on exactly but i and i can see from the government's perspective of there being mm, like why it's self-perpetuating of them saying we need the people's support because we still need to accomplish this mission the only way to do it is to keep getting funding for it via the people's support Mm -hmm. so so part of our mission now is to misconstrue this. Yeah, that becomes a part of the mission because yeah. a part of, the, yeah, it becomes a it becomes a part of the mission to secure funding, mm-hmm. and the process of securing funding is making the people happy. Yeah, but what if you can't make the people happy? What if it's all bad news? Yeah, then, and that's where then except that it's time to go home. Except that it's time to go home, and that's what they should have done, either a long time ago or win it earlier, not going to Iraq. But yeah. That's the war in Afghanistan, guys. Um, it's, it's crazy. Um, we're out. We're out. If there is a silver lining, we we are out. And it was a disaster to get out. But I'm but glad we're out. we're out. At the end of the day, I'm glad we're out. Yeah. Um, there was no winning. If there was a way to win, maybe I would be okay with staying in. But there isn't a way to win. No. It got so bad at a certain point where people were coming in saying that they had new ideas, but these were actually things that were tried in 2004. Wow. Like, that's how bad it got. Oh. Like, people, like, that's how, and that's also, like, because people who were in, like, junior high, high school, when the war started, then went into the government agencies and thought they had these new, fresh ideas, but they were actually things that were even tried. Like, it was just, it's a nightmare. Of, so, God willing, we never enter a war like that again. Um, I'm not totally, yeah, I'm not, not totally convinced. not convinced that America will make the same mistake. We need to humble ourselves as far as our position as nation builders. And I, this is where I, hmm, uh, like as, as we have a war in Ukraine right now and we foresee a potential war in Taiwan, we're going to be looking at opportunities to once again, be making very important decisions on how we intervene. And I think we've done it well so far in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So we're not on the ground. We're supporting them with weapons and ammo. Um, it's not an insurgency. But it's, I don't know, it's just dangerous to us and much more to all of the civilians in the places that these happen. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Everything sucks. Everything sucks. Trying to fix it.
Thanks for tuning in, guys. Thanks, guys.